Welcome, everyone, to, I guess, technically episode one of season three of this podcast, although that's a very arbitrary designation. Just the fact it's the 41st episode, I guess, makes it a season premiere. There's nothing really different between it and the previous episode. There's no uh, last season on recreational thinking. (laughs) Exactly. If there is, like, the real break was really between episodes 31 and 32, when I took, like, a year off and tried to launch a streaming show and all that, and then I came back with the Jimmy Lee rule and all that stuff. But this is a very arbitrary cutoff point, but it is technically a season premiere. So, yay. Um, welcome to uh, episode one of season three of Recreational Thinking with Yogesh Rout. Thank you to our top Patreon subscriber, Darren Monk, and all of the other Patreons, Adam Hahn, Christine Welchel, Isaac Rennert, Andrew Darby, Cody Wilson, Ben Rothenberg, Patrick Friel, Jeremy Horwitz, Dargan Ware, Joe Graziak, Anthony Garino, Adam Villani, Peter Broda, David Croson, Mike Dzyorski, Tim Robert Gomez, Rene Carignan, and the Soccer Thread Podcast. To anyone listening, your name could go here. Sign up at patreon.com slash recreational thinking if you would like to contribute. Our guests today are Dan Blim, Jayanti Martins, and Nick Salyers. Remember that order? It's arbitrary, but it'll be consistent throughout the game. And if we could, going in that order, each of you could briefly state where you're Zooming from and approximately one sentence about yourself, starting with Dan. Hi, I am Dan Blim, Zooming in from Columbus, Ohio. I'm a music history professor and a Punderdome pun competition champion. Hmm, that may come into play in a few minutes. We'll, <laughs> we'll find out. All right, Janti. Hey, I'm Janti Martins. I'm zooming in from balmy Austin, Texas, where I live with my family consisting of two teens and an academic spouse. And I'm a corporate finance professional by training. And I'm so excited to be zooming in with two of my teammates, Nick, my connections teammate, and Dan, my uh, Quiz Nation's teammate. Awesome, yeah. It's our second straight episode with someone from Austin. All right, and uh, Nick. Hi, my name is Nick Salyers. I live in the very small town of Woodsboro, Texas, near Corpus Christi, and I am a data analyst. Hmm. So two Texans here. All right. So the game's in four rounds, one individual and three specialists. The first round I call the three R's round. It allows me to reduce, reuse, and recycle prior material. These questions are a quote-unquote warm-up, not in the sense of being easy, in the sense of sort of, you know, throwing you in at the deep end, letting you get adjusted to getting your mind working and getting adjusted to my writing style. They'll also be worth a tenth of a point as tiebreakers if it ever becomes necessary. So for this round only, you'll each answer as individuals. So if the first person the question is directed at misses, it'll go to the second, then the third if the first two miss. And so the further back you are, the less of a direct shot you have, the more of time you have to think, and some potential answers could get taken off the table. We'll rotate so each of you can answer three questions in first position, three in second, three in third. Then the rules will change. I will explain that when that happens. I'll also explain the quote-unquote Jimmy Lee rule, which I will clarify is meant as an affectionate homage to Jimmy Lee. <laughs> He's <laughs> Not... one of my favorite people, so. I yes. Agree. We love uh, Jimmy. Yes, yeah. uh, a friend of the show, friend of all of us, I think. And this is definitely, this term was coined by his teammates, and it is definitely meant as an affectionate homage to him, not as any kind of insult. But the rule basically is, you know, in order to encourage people to guess rather than just pass, basically, I'm, I'm requiring you to give a guess for every question or an explanation of why you don't want to guess just to show you've put some thought into it. But no, just some leeway is what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's exactly it. Just a general reminder, the content of the podcast is you talking through your thinking process. So don't internalize your thinking, you know, share what you're thinking with the audience, share any interesting connections you have. You don't need to talk just for the sake of talking. I suspect our past couple episodes have gone quite long. I suspect this one might as well, which is fine, but you know, there's no need for filler basically. 
All right. So if everyone's ready, we will begin with Dan in first position. This question arose when Dan and I were chatting before the, before the, we're kind of setting up the taping and the, the episode. And he suggested one category of questions he might like are questions that are an elaborate setup for a pun. And so I realized I had a question like that in one of my streaming shows, and I'm going to reuse it now. Okay, so this will go first to Dan. Dan, known for playing Caroline Forbes on The Vampire Diaries, what actress married the phrase Joe King in 2014, and then, unusually for an established actress, altered her surname in her professional billing? So she became something King rather than her previous name. My pun-loving side can't help but wish that during her unwed days, she had obtained a medical degree. Okay, so, okay, good, let's paste it. I don't know The Vampire Diaries, so that's going to have to sit until the end. We've got someone getting a medical degree before the name King, so it could be Dr. King, Dentist King, Gynecologist King. (laughs) Um, Let's go with Dr. King. So that, of course, brings to mind Martin Luther King Jr. So is there a name that would work with Dr. King? Dream, having a hard time coming up with something. Can I ask, are you just looking for, well, uh, I assume the last name would be fine if I could figure it out. Um, Obviously, the last name she adopted after marriage would not be acceptable because it's in in the question. No, no, no. I just, um, I'm glad I don't have to throw in a first name as part of this. I don't know. So let's, I'm just going to say Pepper. That's another doctor. All right, I see your logic there, but not correct. And since it's just a kind of a warm-up round, I'll point out for the the other contestants, like I do say during her unwed days. So the wordplay is not based on her married surname, basically, is what that means. Oh, okay. Is it my turn now to take a shot at this? Yes, it goes to Jayanti, yes. Okay, I was kind of the same tangent as Dan, trying to think of things that play well that lead into King, but now you kind of drilled that train of thought completely by saying that, no, it's it's the pun-loving side that can't help but wish during her unwed days. I don't know. So I have nothing, no hook at all then to figure something out. And I know nothing about the Vampire Diaries. I think Nick definitely has a better shot at this than I do. I don't know. I may have to deploy the Jimmy rule, Jimmy D rule right away and just come up with something. Oh, I don't know. Or I'm one. Okay. So the King thing is definitely not it. I don't know. I just have to say maybe her last name is just Doctor. I know it doesn't make any sense at all, but I can't, I can't think of anything. So. Yeah, that was guest on my streaming show. I think actually both in like a, well, a play test for my streaming show and the show itself. And I did note that there is a prominent like Pixar filmmaker named Pete Doctor. So yeah. that's, that's not an unknown surname in Hollywood. So it's not a bad guess, but not correct. So pass to Nick. Yeah, Jampy, I have never seen The Vampire Diaries, unfortunately. I am a decent fan of the fray, but not to the extent where I know the uh, partners of the members. I was kind of on the same line of thinking as Dan, and I just not being able to come up with anything. And if these punfessionals over here cannot think of anything, I definitely can't either. So let's just try... <sighs> hmm. I'm going to go for Bray. And I, the only reason why is Bray King comes to mind and that has something to do with the medical, like, you know, fixing bones and whatnot. But cool. that's the only thing I can think of. So here we go. 
Okay, yeah, no, I see where you're coming from. And actually, like the fact that one of the members of the fray is named Joe King also activates my my pun sense. You know, I, I looked up, apparently they were it's according to Wikipedia, they were introduced by a mutual friend, which kind of I was hoping that, you know, she had just kind of come up to him and been like, Oh, you must be Joe King. And he was like, About what? I don't know. <laughs> I uh I would have figured that if she'd gotten a medical degree, then at least she would know how to save a life. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that m- many people will interpret that as a uh, Ray's Anatomy reference, though. I guess those who have listened, regular listeners to my podcast may recall that song, I think was first used on Scrubs in a medical context before Ray's Anatomy. Hi, future yoga share with a slight correction. The song was actually first used on Ray's Anatomy in an episode that aired March 19th, 2006, and then used in Scrubs in an episode that aired April 25th, 2006, a little over a month later. So basically, like the pun here, you don't actually need to know anything about the Vampire Diaries because the pun is just based off of the word or, you know, the concept of a vampire because her name prior to marriage was Candace Akola. If she had a medical degree, she would have been Dr. Akola. Oh, okay. Okay. That's cool. Good on that. I, I, I needed some kind of pun thing here, and I kind of couldn't resist that one. Yeah. All right. So, Jayanthi in first position on this question. Created by Roberta Williams, co-founder of Sierra Online, what liberated heroine of two pioneering 1920-set puzzle adventure games, The Colonel's Bequest and The Dagger of Amon-Ra, was likely named in homage to a real-life 1920s movie star? Oh, my gosh. Both movie, old-time movies and games? My, both my nemesis in one question. All right, let me read them again. Created by Roberta Williams. The Colonel's request and the dagger of Amon Ra is likely named on a real life 1920s movie star. I don't know any of those. I just have to probably just pick some old timey Hollywood star and then hope that it's right. And I'm just going to say Claudette Colbert. Colbert, maybe? Yeah. I think- <laughs> I think she pronounced her name. I think she was French originally and did yeah, pronounce her name. The, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 I think her career kind of peaked in the 1930s. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. A decent guess. So it passes to Nick. So I remember playing your very well-written pop solos friendly. And I remember a question coming up about Robert Williams is here online. And there was a name in the question that I'm assuming is the answer to this question. And I'm trying to remember if I am remembering it correctly. I am not familiar with the actress whatsoever. So this is just entirely from recalling the question. And I think her name was maybe Clara Bow. So again, because this is kind of an early question, I'll write, since it's phrased in reference to a fictional character, you don't necessarily have to lock in a full name. You could also lock in a first or a, just a first or just a last Okay. Name. So let me try Bow. Okay. <laughs> because I think that's the one I'm more confident on, but watch me be wrong. But anyways. Okay. Yeah. So, so, you know, like I said, this is a, you know, recycling prior material around. So I am kind of drawing on things I've written before for those first couple of questions. The name of the heroine in those games was actually Laura Bow, <laughs> which I'm pretty sure is meant to reference the real life movie star, Clara Bow. But by locking in just Bow, yes, you do get credit for that. Nice, Nick. Well done. Well done. Clara Bow was who I was thinking of because of her status as the it girl. They also make delicious gummy bears. (laughs) Yeah, she 
She did, in fact, star in a movie called It, but was was not in its sequel, It Chapter Two. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Nick. Rosamund Pike gave an excellent performance as Edith Bowling Galt Wilson, wife of Woodrow Wilson, in the entertaining narrative podcast Edith. But that wasn't her first time portraying the spouse of a world leader. In the 2016 historical romantic drama A United Kingdom, she depicted Ruth Williams Kama, opposite David Oyelowo as Sir Seretse Kama, the real-life prime minister of what country between 1966 and 1980? Okay, so... I am familiar with Rosamund Pike, phenomenal performance and you know, Gone Girl, all that good stuff. I am not familiar with this podcast and history is definitely one of my weak subjects. So let's just try to think of, and David Oyelowo. Um, hmm. I'm trying to just analyze Sir Soretsi comma and trying to think comma and see if there is a country that comes to mind that uses maybe that's some sort of letter pattern and I'm not really going to come up with anything I don't think so I am just going to guess Uganda good guess although I think they had kind of Idi Amin in power during a lot of that era who was a subject of a different movie about a decade earlier but good guess and passes to Dan so I remember seeing the trailers for this movie. I had completely forgotten its existence until this question came up. But now that I think about it, I am pretty sure I saw trailers for it. And I'm pretty sure we had sort of more sweeping kind of planes rather than dense jungles or something like that. So I'm going to say Tanzania. Another good guess. Yeah, I think from Independence, I think it was Nerere, Julius Nerere who was the leader there. Just going off of memory. Yeah, uh, it was Nerere, yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, but yeah, another good guess and uh, pass to Jayanti. This is really sad because I've actually seen this movie, but I'm terrible at remembering details. I definitely am going to go with English speaking, where English is a dominant language. I'm going to go with a country that's, you know, that English is still a dominant language. And I think this is like West Africa, if I remember right, because I remember it being like dusty. And, and I think I'm going to go with Nigeria. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, it is definitely, I mean, a, I think you all narrowed in on former English colonies yeah. in Africa. I'm not sure if Tanzania was English, but yeah, Uganda and Nigeria, I think definitely were. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but this is actually kind of more toward the southern part of the continent. The correct answer is Botswana. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. All right. All right. I've seen the movie. <laughs> so I actually wasn't expecting anyone to have seen or heard of the movie. It kind of flew under the radar. So I'm, it's a pleasant surprise that you, you were. All right. Dan, musical theater question. You. There's, there is a minor featured role in the musical Annie called Star to Be that has prophetically launched a surprising number of musical theater careers. For example, when my family visited New York City on vacation in 1997, I got to see that character portrayed on Broadway by what then unknown actress? Okay, so this is someone who uh, wasn't famous before 1997, but presumably would have gone on to do something major. If we assume that this is a young kind of girl, then you know would have maybe broken out somewhere around 10-ish years later. So thinking about who might have become famous around 2007, or earlier, some good names out there. And because I don't care about score at all, I'll throw out some names I'm thinking of. <laughs> Laura Benanti, I know, played Maria in 
uh, or played by the kids in a, in a Sound of Music performance. Sutton Foster is a name I'm thinking about, someone who kind of made it big in the 2000s with Thoroughly Modern Millie. I guess there's Leah Michelle, who sort of hit it big a decade later with Spring Awakening. So in my mind, I'm just trying to figure out age-wise who would maybe make the most sense. So if you assume this person was, yeah, I might uh, go with Leah Michelle. All right. Good guess. I, I'll circle back to some of the things you said, but for now, I'll just pass this to Jayanti. I don't know the timeline what I'm thinking is right, because 97 may be too late, but somewhere in the past, I've read that Sarah Jessica Parker got a big start with, on Annie on stage in, in Broadway. So I think I'm just going to go with Sarah Jessica Parker just because I've kind of heard that in the past, even though it may not fit exactly with the timeline. Yeah, I think Sarah Jessica Parker kind of as a girl, you know, got her start in like the... Yeah, got a start in Annie. I think like, I read that. Yeah, but, but not the 90s revival of Annie. She was already yeah, fairly famous by that time. But yeah, I see your logic there, but not correct. So pass to Nick. Yeah, I am only familiar with some of the songs from Annie. Not familiar with the musical or the role of Start to Be. So I have not not entirely sure like what the age would be. 1997. The one name that came to mind, and I feel like she might be way too young for this, but if there's nothing else that can come to mind is Ariana DeBose. But I feel like she might be a little bit too young to have gotten her start in 1997, but nevertheless, that's what I'm going to go with. Okay. I mean, Dan kind of did a lot of the, the work for you, sort of narrowing down on, you know, a few good good prospects for who the answer might be. And it does help to be familiar. You might assume just based on knowing Annie is kind of about a young girl and the ensemble around her are also, you know, fairly young girls. You might think that, you know, it might be someone who is that age, but Star to Be is actually like a character who pops up when they're first introducing New York City. It's supposed to be like an aspiring starlet. So someone who's, you know, closer to like around 20 or so. Wow. Uh, yeah. And so this actress was in her early 20s at the time, became quite a uh, kind of broke out a few years later in the early 2000s. And it is, in fact, one of the people Dan said, Sutton Foster. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know how proud I would be of seeing Leah Michelle. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I should have just like, used one of Dan's because he did, he did all the work for us. <laughs> yeah. Well, I get, I get sort of at least some credibility among any. F- Broadway fans listening to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's have a lot of credibility there. <laughs> yeah, that's why I set a lot of, uh, or you know, kind of the the format of it allows people to say their thinking process, so people can show if they're on the right track and have partial knowledge, even if they don't get the answer. All right, Jayanti, reportedly Vince Gilligan's favorite poet. What woman can be seen in a framed portrait on Jane's wall in an episode of Breaking Bad? In addition to being U.S. Poet Laureate during the Truman Administration and winning both the Pulitzer and a National Book Award, she is remembered for her same-sex relationship with Brazilian architect Lota de Macedo Suarez, depicted in the 2013 film Reaching for the Moon. Well, this movie I haven't seen, unlike the other one. So at least I have an excuse for not knowing yet. She was, uh, she was played in the film by Miranda Otto, if that helps. No, so... Truman Administration winning Pulitzer and National Book Award. Male poet. The only female poet that pops immediately is Sylvia Plath, and of course she was a Ted Hughes, but I don't know whether she had like a same-sex relationship at some point in time, so I'm just going to go with Sylvia Plath, because that's the first name that popped up in my head, and I'm kind of stuck on that train of thought, and sometimes it's hard to shift, so I'm just going to go with that. Okay, yeah, so that, that does happen. I can see that. I mean, definitely both the character of Jane and Sylvia Plath came to a unhappy fate at a 
unfortunately young age, but that's not the correct answer. So pass to Nick. So I am not familiar with Vince Gilligan's, you know, liking this poet, but I do believe that the person who was poet laureate during the Truman administration was Elizabeth Bishop. And I do believe she did write about having a same sex relationship and I'm pretty sure she won a Pulitzer. So that's what I'm going to go with. Don't really have much to contribute there, unfortunately. Yeah. So in the past few episodes, I've both, I've had questions focusing on chess and shoehorn chess into questions that aren't about chess. In this case, I didn't use any chess clues at all, but it is someone who shares their name with the chess piece. It is Elizabeth Bishop. Nice for that, Nick. And so Shout out to Julianne Moore and still Alice, <laughs> who recites Elizabeth Bishop. So I believe Nick, we start, yeah, Nick is in the first position on this question. This is a solve for X type question, not algebra, not algebra related. Oh, day. Can't put my math degree to use, darn it. <laughs> uh, well, you could have, you had the option to select math as one of your categories. Right? <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I did not. <laughs> I could have had another 20 minute discussion of a famous math problem. <laughs> All right. Okay. So whose name have I replaced with X in this excerpt from a June 2022 Vulture profile titled The X Character is its own comedy genre now? So here's the excerpt. An internal logic unites even X's most out there creations in a common humanity from an oversharing sex expert to Drew Barrymore on the beach. Her character's mannerisms are always a flimsy cover-up for base operating levels of nerves, hostility, or unpreparedness. They pull their faces into the exact opposite of a smize and call their off-screen co-workers girly through gritted teeth. The people X embodies teeter between sad and funny. It's a crapshoot of either publicly falling apart or silently screaming. Her delicate balancing act is to keep them endearing regardless. Okay, lots of process here. Alrighty, so... After you reading it, I heard you say smize. I just can't get tired of things out of my head. But um, <laughs> so whose name have placed X in this excerpt? So I'm just trying to debate if X is going to be like a generic term or it says name. So I'm assuming maybe it might be an actor or an actress's name. An internal logic unites even X's most out there from an oversharing sex expert to juju. Sex expert and Drew Barrymore on the beach, for some reason, I'm getting like Jennifer Coolidge into my mind because of sex expert from her in Legally Blonde. And then she was on the beach in White Lotus. Her character's mannerisms are always a flimsy cover. Yeah, she does present some levels of nervousness and hostility. Yeah, the only thing, the only name that I can come up with that I feel like would embody all of these characteristics would be Jennifer Coolidge. So I'm going to go with her. That's a very good guess. I can kind of see the notion of a Jennifer Coolidge character being its own comedy genre, but it's not the correct answer here. So pass to Dan. I'm trying to think of, since this is a really recent article, so it's presumably someone who is having kind of a, a moment or has been having a moment over the last few years, someone who has a very sort of iconic character and kind of plays the same character in every appearance. And so the person I am going to say is Rebel Wilson. Oh, I like that guess as well, but it's unfortunately not correct. So pass to Jayanti. Oh my gosh, both excellent guesses. I don't know. I'm just going to go with somebody kind of, you know, somebody completely different from them. I'm going to say Tiffany Haddish. I don't know why I thought of her because she's like a comedian kind of who's awesome. I love her humor and she kind of 
has broken a lot of barriers in the comedy thing. So I feel like, you know, she deserves her own genre. So even if it's not the right answer, I'm going to go pay homage to her and say Tiffany Haddish. Okay, yeah. I think I think Dan kind of had the right logic when he said, you know, the recent profile, so it's someone who's definitely up and coming on the rise. I kind of thought that Nick might have an advantage because this is really someone whose career has largely broken out as a result of, you know, social media websites posting videos on like TikTok and Twitter or stuff like that. So, you know, maybe someone who I think Nick has a bit of a reputation for being in touch, more in touch with internet culture than, uh, <laughs> than many other quizzers. So I thought maybe he might. But um, she also had a kind of a breakout role on TV in the show Hacks. Her name is oh, Hannah Einbinder. I uh, know. Oh, no. Go. I, I cannot remember her name now. Sorry. It's uh, Megan Stalter. Megan Stalter. And I just wrote a question about her for our My Pride Month friendly. So that's oh. so embarrassing. Yes. Iconic queen. Yeah. All right. Okay. So it was in, in Nick's wheelhouse, as I thought. I just, okay. All right. Dan in first position. Vincent going into the last cycle of these. What versatile Chinese singer-songwriter whose immense vocal range includes a whistle register that has earned her the honorific Dolphin Princess, which I imagine sounds better in Mandarin, went viral for her live rendition of the Diva Dance from the soundtrack of The Fifth Element. While that piece is a, the Diva Dance composition is a product of studio engineering and cannot be perfectly duplicated by a human being, this woman came about as close as it's possible to come. I have to scroll for this one. Chinese singer-songwriter, vocal range. I know nothing about the diva dance because I famously don't watch that many sci-fi. I was like friends with all the sci-fi kids in like high school and like college, but I just never got into sci-fi itself. So I'm left with trying to name a Chinese singer-songwriter, which is honestly not not doing doing me any favors, let alone one that you know, has kind of a knowledge. So I'm just going to say Mitski because I know nothing about her and it's obviously a stage name. <laughs> yeah, Mitski, I think is of, uh, or I think was born in Japan. Of, that was my yeah. thought, but nah. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, and you did anticipate another question that will be coming up in a few minutes, but that's not the correct answer to this one. So the pass to... Uh, who comes after her? That's me, I think. Yes, right? Jan- yes Jandy. Just like Dan, I'm terrible at sci-fi, among other things. But I guess I'll have to again go for the Jimmy D rule, but maybe I'll just take his last name this time and say Lee. Very good guess, but very good <laughs> good strategy there, but unfortunately not correct. So fast to Nick. It's not yeah. Jimmy Lee. <laughs> <laughs> um, like Jayanthi and Dan, I'm not familiar with this Chinese singer-songwriter. I'm trying to reread the question and see if maybe there's a hint dropped in somewhere, and I'm not getting anything from it. So I am just going to continue the common last names and go with the Wu. Again, yeah. I mean, this is definitely, that is, this is pretty much either, well, it's not really you either know it or you don't, more you either know it or you guess a common Chinese surname. <laughs> and, you know, that wasn't a bad path to go down, but her name is Jane Zhang, Z-H-A-N-G. Yeah, she has also made some inroads into English language performing as well, but she's very popular in China. All right, Jayanthi in first position. Described by Wikipedia as one of the leading women of the Italian Renaissance and a major cultural and political figure, Isabella Deste, not quite sure how to pronounce that, is thought to be the model for Titian's Isabella in Black, Rubens' Titian copy, Isabella in Red, and perhaps even Leonardo's Mona Lisa. That's kind of a minority theory, but it is one theory if he was depicted in that painting. She grew up in Ferrara 
but via marriage into the house of Gonzaga, spent her entire adult life as the marchioness of which Italian city-state? Okay, so Titian's Isabella. Um, Gonzaga, the marriage into the house of Gonzaga. I've heard of the Gonzaga. So it's not obviously not Washington, excuse me, because the house of Gonzaga. Marchioness. The Marchioness title I've never heard of before. Uh, Italian city-state. But I'm kind of going, because it sounds a little bit French, I'm kind of going west towards, you know, Monaco, that area. And I'm going to go, I'm going to say Genoa. Genoa? Yeah. Good guess, but not correct. So pass to Nick. Uh, yeah, so along with history, geography is definitely not my strong suit. So I am still struggling to come up with a, an Italian city-state. I'm not familiar with Isabella de Est or any of these works either. So I'm just going to say a place in Italy, and that is Tuscany. Another good guess, but not correct. So, Dan? Like my friends, I am also entirely basing this on name and Italian city-state. So let's say Milan. Okay, yeah. So Marchioness is basically like the female counterpart to Marcus. Well, in England would be Marcus, in France, Marquis. Basically right. that that title, yeah. And just for alliteration's sake, I do love the phrase Mantuan Marchioness. Yeah. Yes, the House of Gonzaga ruled Mantua. I just went in the opposite direction. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh well. All right. And I'm final... like internally going through another opening, another show to like go through all the Italian city names that they mentioned. I'll come back to musical theater. All right. And the final question of this round before we move on to the main game, we'll start with Nick in first position. Bury Me at Makeout Creek, the 2014 breakthrough album by Mitski, takes its title from a line spoken by which character in a season 11 episode of The Simpsons? Oh, that is a good question. I am familiar with some of Mitski's work. Not that familiar, though, where I can name that. And I am notoriously bad when it comes to anything involving The Simpsons. I have my other OQL teammates there for that to help me out. Bury me at Makeout Creek. So that makes me think of Bury Me at Wounded Knee, obviously, but I don't think that's going to take me anywhere. It's probably like a parody of that. I'm just going to say Krusty the Clown, because why not? Why not indeed, yeah. I mean, yes. no, that's a, definitely a Simpsons character. Not a bad guess at all, but not correct. So pass to Dan. I do love the Simpsons, but we are kind of in the, like, seasons four to seven are the real sweet spot for me. Like, every episode is brilliant. And I, I think I had continued watching by season 11, but that's about the time that I had felt it was getting to be not worth the time. But this is, I think, one of the kids. And my guess is that it's not going to be one of the titular kids. So let's say Millhouse. All right. Yeah. So uh, that epi- the specific episode is the one where Bart has a short-lived career as a faith healer, which comes to an end when he real- his friend is hit by a truck and he realizes he can't do anything about that. And of course, the friend who gets hit by the truck and says, bury me at Makeout Creek is in fact Millhouse. Oh, nice job, Dan. <laughs> it did like, like, I can picture him saying it, but I don't know if that's me inventing it or I actually didn't see that episode. When I started, I first, the first few questions I wrote for this round were about women. And then I was like, you know what, why not just make every single question in the round about women? No particular reason, just kind of fell. Even that last one, even though it's, I guess the answer line is a male character, albeit one voiced by a woman. It's primarily about a woman's work, Mitski being a woman. Mm -hmm. So yeah, all of those questions. 
Yeah. And so we end that round with Nick at 0 0.2, Dan at 0 0.1, and the only woman, Jayanti, at 0 0.0. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. It's a close game. <laughs> <laughs> it is, yes. Of course, those scores will, of course, very quickly be wiped out when the point values go up quite a bit. in each not losing to Nick and Dan at all any day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this game is really, it's about showing off knowledge and having fun, not about when the points are just kind of there to give things a sense of stakes, but you know, it's not about who, it, as I've said, pointed out many times, Victoria Gross has lost twice. So if you only lose once, you're only twice as good a quizzer as her. <laughs> okay, so we begin, we'll now move into round one, the previous one being round zero. This is yeah. not, the not all that hard round. In this round and all successive rounds, each of you will get three specialist questions related to the categories you selected. Standard caveat, it's not intended to be a fair comprehensive test of your knowledge of them. The questions may relate directly or obliquely to your category. To keep everyone on their toes, I won't reveal the categories up front. They'll probably become evident as the game goes on. But before you can answer your specialist questions, your fellow contestants can work together to try and steal the points from you. You'll only get a chance to answer for points if your opponents miss. If I pass the question to you without saying if they've gotten it right or not, if you're absolutely certain of the answer and that they got it right, you can just confirm. Otherwise, it's in your interest to give a different answer because whether they're right or wrong, you won't get any points just by copying them. And then bonus questions may pop up if you get stolen from. There may be an additional question that you can answer for half the points of the steal. Those are just kind of quasi-randomly sprinkled in. They won't go with every question that gets stolen, and they will relate to the question, but they won't always fit into the same category or be at the same level of difficulty. So just another element of kind of luck sprinkled in through the game. Also... If when a question is stolen, the full points will go to both stealers, even if only one knew the answer. So that's another way that luck plays into the game. It's just a game after all. And so these questions being not all that hard, they'll be worth two points as a steal and one point as a specialist. All right. We all ready to continue? Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we will begin with Jayanthi and Nick to try to steal from Dan. A sketch from a 2000 episode of the Asian Indian-centric BBC comedy series, Goodness Gracious Me, pitted the superhero Bangra Man against villains who engaged in what exceptionally twee form of English folk dancing. In 2014, a real-life May Day celebration in Sandwell included a dance-off between Bangra dancers and practitioners of this form of dance. Oh boy. Okay. You know, yeah, okay, go ahead. Oh, talking? I was going to ask, are you familiar with the TV show? No, or... Bangra, no, I know Bangra Man is like a Punjabi, you know, Bangra is basically a Punjabi dance. So I know that. Okay. And again, but you know, you also know that Dan teaches like Irish dancing or some kind of, he runs like a dance camp. So this is obviously, yeah, they do that. But English folk dancing. I don't know. I only know. I, I can't even think of an English folk dance, period. I, I'm totally. Like, I, have this, like, I don't know, the May Day thing. Like dancing around the Maypole or something? Oh, that's what I was thinking. I don't know, but I just, I, I don't really consider that a dance or like. But I can't think of any specific name of an English folk dance. That and then time. dancing around the Maypole, having a dance off with that would be hilarious to watch, but I don't think. Um, man, oh, it'd be amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, should we just say maypole dancing then? I, I guess so. If we got nothing else, I, I really can't think of anything else. I mean, it's just, it's just. I don't think Yogesh will have May in the question. Yeah, that's another thing too. You know, um, you know I, because he, he 
puts a lot of effort into the question. I don't think he'll do it, but but I can't think of anything. Well, I don't think we can come up with anything. Yeah, let's else, go with so. maple dancing then. Yeah. yeah, that's our final answer, you guys. Okay. I tried to find the video of the 2014 dance. I could only find about five seconds of video of it, though. Not enough to really see what was going on. But yeah, I think it, I mean, I think it may involve maypole dancing, but that's not the name of the form of dance. Okay. So I'll, I'll pass this to Dan. Yeah. So uh, the maypole is a tradition of May Day in the British Isles, of course, but they also do Morris dancing, which are people with bells and they have uh, handkerchiefs or sticks. And it's tradition that they dance the sun up. So I'm going to go with Morris dancing. Yes, that that sketch pitted the superhero Bangra Man against the evil Morris dancer Walla. I have to watch this video. I'm fascinated. But yeah, speaking of it, I decided while while writing the question, I decided kind of at the last minute to switch Nick and Dan's seats just to get better flow. So switching Nick from seat one to seat three and Dan from seat three to seat one. And I couldn't just do a regular find and replace because, you know, if I replace like Dan with Nick and then replace Nick with Dan, I'll just get two Dan's. So I had to <laughs> I had to do a more elaborate procedure. I replaced Dan with Daban, D-B-A-N, just a nonsense phrase that wasn't spelled like Dan, basically, and didn't include Dan in it. And then I had to, you know, replace Nick with Dan and then Daban with Nick. The problem is that many of Dan's questions include the word dance or dancing in them. Oh, of- no. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so, so there were a bunch of like nixes and nixing scattered throughout. <laughs> I think I caught most of them. I think I, I caught. Well, I, th- I hope I got all of them. But if one of if any if a nixa pops up in any of the questions, that's what that means. Okay. Okay. So we are now on Dan. Uh, so Morris dancing is correct, and we are now on Dan and Nick to try and steal from Jayanti. Although UNESCO's World Heritage Committee and its World Heritage List did not come into existence until the 1970s, the first large-scale use of UNESCO's resources to preserve culturally important sites and artifacts came with the 1960 International Campaign to Save the Monuments of which region? It was initiated at the request of the Egyptian and Sudanese governments, who feared the loss of sites like the Abu Simbel Temple Complex due to the construction of Aswan High Dam. If you don't know the name of this specific region, don't worry, Banky from Chasing Amy probably doesn't know it either. Okay. I haven't seen Chasing Amy. I have not seen Chasing Amy, period, either. So that's not going to help. Regions of Northeast Africa, basically, is where we are. Um, There was, like, I think it might have been in Sudan. There was, like, a Western region or state in Sudan that's been, like, at the site of a war and ethnic cleansing and stuff. So maybe, but that would, that's more recent. So that wouldn't apply to the 1960s. So I mean, do you you remember the name? I don't remember the name of it either. So I don't think that would apply here. The first one. Oh, my goodness. It's been, I don't know that I've ever had to come up with a random Sudanese word. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> some reason i think like Donbar comes to mind for maybe the sudanese region but i don't i have no idea where i'm pulling that from and i'm not even sure if that's sudanese or anything but i i would be fine to go with that because i've got nothing better so do okay. you want to Donbar? sure go for it Donbar is what we'll go with okay i don't know you might be thinking of darfur i think yes okay yes okay um, so there we go all right, decent guess, yeah. but not not correct. Pass to Jayanti. I don't know the Chasing Amy connection, but this this sounds like Nubia to me. 
Okay, yeah. I mean, chasing it again. It's a it's film that is very. Some of what it has to say is very politically incorrect by today's standards, but there's definitely scenes that that hold up. And the scene where Banky asks, "What's a Nubian?" It will never not make me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a name of you know an ancient region, but also a name that's been kind of revived. Talking now about the achievements of Sub-Saharan Africa and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Nubia is correct. Thanks, Rob. All right. And now Jayanti and Dan to try and steal from Nick. Though known to some for her sitcom roles and to others as a scream queen, what actress has kept up a parallel career as a singer fronting a punk metal group called Phi Dalla Ho? That's what it's called. That included ex-members of Suicidal Tendencies and forming a country rock duo with fellow thespian Missy Pyle. She also duetted with Boots Electric on Eagles of Death Metal's 2019 cover of Steve Miller's Abracadabra. Dan, I'm going to rely heavily on you. This well, we, we don't have I'm, a pool of friends, so we can't call John Walker. Uh, no, I know. <laughs> John would be all over this. Yeah, these are, I mean, I do, country rock is honestly the closest I can come in, but but I'm just trying to think of uh, sitcom roles and people who starred in horror films. So, well, we're queen, queen. Do we know which should we go down that path first and see if we can figure out someone who is known as a screen queen? I don't know. <laughs> can so try. Movie? Yeah. I'm trying to think of actresses who have been in. It was Courtney Cox in, like, in one of the scary movies. She was in Scream. Was, yeah, she was in Scream. And she was also in a sitcom, but I don't know whether there's She any. was. That's not a bad guess. Nev Campbell wasn't in sitcoms. She was in dramas, I think. I don't know. Vera Farmiga isn't. I like I like Courtney Cox. So do you want to just go with her? I can't think of any. No one else is coming to mind, but I don't know horror films really at all. Okay. So should we just go with her? I mean, it sure. kind of seems like too obvious and too easy, but I can't think of anyone else. So should sure. we just go all with right. her? All right. Yeah, I'll go for it. You want to okay. say it? Yeah. Courtney Cox, final answer. Okay, I mean, that is someone who was in horror movies and on multiple sitcoms, so can't fault your logic there, but not correct. Nick? Yeah, so I know one of the shows that she has been on was Anger Management, and there's another show, I believe it was in the late 90s, or early 2000s, so it's kind of slipping my mind, but that I did not watch. And I have listened to some of her music, and it's actually pretty decent. She was part of a country rock duo called Smith and Pyle, and the actress is Shawnee Smith who plays Amanda Young in the Saw films. Oh, this is the time for a Jimmy Lee, Smith or Johnson thing. Yeah, I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> I'm waiting for the uh, Smith or Johnson guest here. Oh, I'm very interested to uh, listen to that cover of Abracadabra. I did not know she did that. So I'm definitely going to be looking at that after this. Yeah, so, I mean, and a bit of metagaming here, right? Why, you know, this is, again, a question where I kind of withheld some of the, the more direct clues. So why was it classified in sort of the not all that hard round? One possibility might be that it's very fraudable if you just kind of guess a common last name. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but the, the show you were trying to think of was the less famous of the Shows with a Cheers alum playing a Harvard-educated physician, Becker. Becker, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Very good actress who, I mean, she was very funny on Becker, but she was a supporting character with not much range. I think in her later role, she's gotten to show a bit more range, though not really on anger management because that was not a good showcase for anyone, really. <laughs> but um, yes. Okay, so each of you has gotten your own specialist question in the first cycle. So they're all essentially tied minus the tiebreaker, or, you know, not taking into account the tiebreaker. So now we go with Jayanti and Nick to try and steal from Dan. 
1973 film, The Last of Sheila, scripted by Stephen Sondheim and his good friend Anthony Perkins, yes, the one from Psycho, is considered one of the best cinematic examples of what specific genre? Sondheim's soul straight, as in non-musical, play, which was originally titled The Doctor Is Out, but given a different title for its brief Broadway run in 1996, is also in this genre. All right, give me a second to read it. Okay, so non-musical. What specific genre? I vaguely have heard of The Last of Sheila, but I could not tell you, like, like literally know that it's a film, but could not tell you anything else Do you about think it. the Anthony Perkins thing is some kind of clue that, I mean, was it something to do with horror just because it's the Anthony Perkins? Yeah, maybe. I'm just trying to think of, like, what would a specific horror genre, like... The doctor is out. Like Giallo, but that's more Italian. And I don't, that seems like that would be like something I could never see Sondheim doing. Um, right. But the doctor is back. I wonder whether the title has any kind of clue. Like given a different title. And it also was in Broadway in 1996. No, I don't know any kind of specific genres, honestly. Yeah, neither do I. And I, I think I'm, I'm stuck on the horror aspect too with Anthony Perkins and then with my last yeah, question. Yeah, <laughs> It's just a coincidence, you know? Yeah. So that, that it's him. I don't know. The Doctor is out. I'm trying to see whether the title has any clue. The Doctor is out. What, what, could, it, what could it be about, you know? Yeah. Mm. I, this might be a little bit too late because I think these were more popular in the 60s. And I can't remember the exact term, but it's like the, like, whatever happened to Baby Jane and, like, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, like those, like, psycho biddies, I think they might have been called. But I feel like 1973 would have been way too late. And I feel I like it's a psycho and Anthony Perkins. I, yeah. I like that guess. Do you want to try that? Yeah, go ahead. Go okay, ahead. So let's go with Psycho Biddy. Okay. In episode 29, or yeah, uh, 39, I think. We talked about Anthony Perkins' son, Oz Perkins, who is a horror director. So he does have some connections to the horror genre besides just playing Norman Bates. But horror is not, nothing horror related is correct in this case. So pass to Dan. So I've never actually seen it, but I know a little bit about the movie and Sondheim talks about it as his love of puzzles. So this is a, like a mystery or a murder mystery kind of setup. Like a whodunit, a whodunit type mystery. Yeah. 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 Yeah, There's definitely a lot of puzzle solving in it. I think, yeah, Perkins and Sondheim were known kind of for their love of kind of creating puzzle type games and uh, another great seventies mystery film Sleuth was actually inspired by kind of hanging out with Sondheim and, and his games and that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, this the 70s, there were a surprising number of kind of um, attempts to bring the murder mystery whodunit to the big screen, especially Hercule Pardo adaptations like Murder on the Orient Express, Death on the Nile. But this one was an original screenplay, not based on anything, any previous material. And it's very good. And it's one of those movies where after it's over, you look back and you realize that the title itself was a very important clue in, in allowing you to figure out who did it. But you don't realize that until you get to the yeah, end. Yeah. The t- we did look at the title, but very briefly. We should remember it was Dan's and his love of games and puzzles. And we yeah. Just, he didn't he completely he forgot more on that. that route. Yeah. 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 And yeah, so the, the straight play was actually co-written with George Firth, his frequent collaborator and also a prolific character actor in many movies and TV shows. And it was played on Broadway with the title Getting Away with Murder. OK. Oh, we, oh, we, thought, we always should have some pun genre, you know, <laughs> given that it's Dan. And we, we, we missed that. We, we missed that one, too. <laughs> I don't know that pun is a genre of film. Otherwise, I would be <laughs> in the movies far more than I am. I was literally about to say exactly the same thing Dan just said. <laughs> All right. Uh, Dan and Nick now to try and steal from Jayanti. 
In 2015, Indian commando successfully captured Pakistani terrorist Sajab Ahmed after flushing him out of a cave using grenades treated with a derivative of a cultivated plant product called Butjulokia. I may have mispronounced that. The but in that name originally meant Bhutanese, as in from Bhutan, but it was mistranslated into English as what word that has become part of the American or English language name for this foodstuff? So some sort of cultivated plant that yeah. I'm guessing would irritate. So I'm thinking something like like mustard or something that's sharp or mace or something like that. Something that would have a, a kind of more caustic effect. Right but also that would come from a sort of South Asian. Yeah, I, I'm kind of just completely stumped here. Sorry, I, I really don't feel like, I feel like of those two, mustard would be the most plausible. And Indian commanders. So it's called boot jalokia. And we have this being but translated the, with jalokia with a different- the only, But only the boot part was mistranslated. Right, right. So... Which means that jalokia sort of translated on- and how would they mistranslate boot? Yeah, I'm just trying to think of any like plausible mistranslations and, and not coming up with anything. Yeah. Your guess of mustard has probably been the best. And I don't think I'm going to be able to contribute anything, unfortunately. Right. We can try it. Mustard. Good guess, but not correct. Jayanti? Good guess. Boot, I mean... A little bit of Hindi knowledge will help. And unfortunately, I have the advantage of you guys there. So boot means ghost in English. So, and, you know, spicy foods in India. So boot jaloka means ghost pepper. So ah. that, oh, nice. that, that's your answer. So. Yeah. I mean, in terms of what kind of might be used by, you know, law enforcement or military, you know, yeah. as, as an irritant, yeah. right? You think of like pepper spray. Pepper spray, mm-hmm. yeah. Right. Which comes from chili peppers. And of course, the one from India that's considered the spiciest of the Indian ones, I think, is ghost pepper. So ghost, yeah. Yeah, so I think the second spiciest pepper after the Carolina Reaper, I believe, yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah. And I think it overtook like the the Trinidad Maruga scorpion, which was- Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which was grown at the uh, the Chili Pepper Institute in my former home city of Las Cruces, New Mexico. I didn't know- Fun fact. Yeah. Fun fact, the, uh, the Carolina Reaper, Carolina was mistranslated. It originally meant Bouchonese. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, Jayanti and Dan now to try and steal from Nick. Okay. What star kid aids Princess Peach and battles Kami Koopa in the first Paper Mario game? Wikipedia does not have a distinct article for this character, but it does contain articles sharing this character's name that are parenthetically designated musician, internet slang, home perm, and gay slang. Okay. okay. I think people could see Nick's face right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. I'm going to hone in myself on gay slang that also could mean home perm or could be a musician. I need you to translate some of the other things to me because I don't know. <laughs> Have you ever done a home perm, Jante? Uh, no. Uh, Kid, it's Princess Peach and Battles Cami Cooper. Okay. Character, but it can, does contain articles sharing this character's name that are musician. And I don't know. Dan, do you have any ideas that we can work off of? Not for a family podcast. Otter? I mean, that's a gay slang thing, but that's going to have, uh, I guess it doesn't say there aren't more articles containing, try to think of, of G-rated gay slang phrases. Otter, 
Twink. Yeah. Could be like Twinkle, Star Kid. Okay, I like that. Well, intimate slang home firm. What is the home firm connection? I just assume it's like a, a, a brand that you could use to like perm your hair at home, like a company that would sell like a product that okay. you could use. I don't dislike Twink, actually. Okay, I like that one. Anything else? Isn't it, <sighs> I kind of did, well, there was the LGBT OQL quiz, the one day thing, and there was a bunch of times I said, I need to remember this. Kiki? What's Kiki? That's like dancing. Oh, it's like a party. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kiki is not bad. So I, I don't know. I, I, I like Twink. I mean, I rely more, more on you than this. You definitely know more than I do. So if you think Twink fits better, let's go with that. I don't have strong opinions one way or another. I should flip a coin. A coin. Okay, I'm going to get a coin. Let's actually do it. <laughs> Got to go to my coin jar. Definitely not the first time something like that has been done on this podcast. <laughs> it has a, it has a mixed record of success, let's say. All right. Well, I would imagine that it can't work all the time. Right. All right. Uh, heads, twink, tails, kiki. Oh, good to me. All right. It fell on the edge. <laughs> it's like Mr. Smith goes to Washington. All right. right. Came up heads, so we'll say twink. Yeah, so your logic, what, what is a gay slag that also can connect to star? Was exactly the right logic. It is twink. Yes. <laughs> nice job. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, like you guys said in the question. So just a mini tiny star who helps Princess Peach when she's trapped in Bowser's Sky Castle throughout the game and then eventually at the end helps Princess Peach defeat Kami Koopa, who's kind of Bowser's sidekick throughout this uh, game in the series. Not sure of the musician with the meaning twink, home perm, I'm assuming Dan is, uh, internet slang. So twink or twinking in video game slang, or I'm assuming that's what this might be here for, is whenever someone who is relatively new to a video game trades items or things of that nature with their more experienced friends to get better weapons, even though they're relatively new to the game. And then gay slang. Yeah, a slim, hairless male with a youthful face is usually right. What I would have been uh, 20 years ago. <laughs> now, now I am not. Um, what, uh, when you said uh, you assume I'm familiar with the home perm. Um, no, I ju- no, I didn't mean I assumed with the home perm. I, I mean, like, I think your logic was. Okay. Sense. I, I, I was like, I don't, I don't home perm, but I mean, my hair is doing it. It's like summer thing today. That's uh, different. Nicely deduced. Yeah. And, and I think after the previous episode, episode 40, I, th- I don't think I have any more claim to being a family podcast anymore. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they kind of ripped that apart. But, but it's okay to kind of reestablish it here. Yeah. We were look- <laughs> looking for something much more G-rated. Um, yeah, and- these teens are going to listen to this. So. <laughs> I'll ask them not. Oh, they okay. watch worse stuff than this. So. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think it's fine. Um, I think okay. they can educate me a little bit, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so that was our first steal of the game and also will come with our first bonus of the game. More of the stuff I picked up from the Wikipedia disambiguation page. So for Nick, according to that Wikipedia disambiguation page, Twink is also the name of a brand that has become synonymous with correction fluid in New Zealand and Fiji, which is oddly specific. It's also the name of a sprite character in what franchise that debuted in the 1980s. And this is just for me? Yep. Oh, sprite character that debuted in the 1980s. Yeah, so 80s video games, definitely not my strong suit. Sprite character. 
my mind when i hear sprite character for some reason thinks legend of zelda and legend of zelda definitely premiered in the 1980s so i think that's really my only guess here because i'm not entirely familiar with that so yeah, Okay, so yeah, when actually when I was living in Las Cruces, I had a friend who was teaching at like a I guess progressive high school or something there, and and I I visited her video game design class, and that's where I learned the term sprite in like the video game context. But it's actually being used here in more kind of the old fashioned context of like a type of fantasy creep, you know, creature. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so yeah, this is a a franchise that actually started in greeting cards and became an animated TV series as well. It's called Rainbow Bright. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we continue now with Jayanti and Nick to try and steal from Dan. All right. Let's try. Aspiring docents, of which I'm sure there are many, at Wichita State University can get some training at a museum located in a building that once stood at the corner of Bluff and Kellogg, but is now situated behind Marcus Welcome Center, just off 21st Street. To what specifically is that museum dedicated? Note that per the museum's frequently asked questions page, admission is free for all guests, but there is no food available in the museum. Oh my gosh. I'm wondering whether this is like one of those world's largest things that you see, you know, because it's Kansas and you drive by and you see like the world's largest like corn cob on the cob or the world's largest. I don't know why, because it's the Midwest that kind of came pop to my mind, but I don't know. But given that it's also like in the- I think it was like a museum. So I don't think it would be like, like one of those world's largest thing. I think it's probably right. dedicated to like a specific thing, the no food available in the museum. Or could it be like something with barbecue because it's Kansas and- Maybe no food available. Silverware comes to mind, which would just be such a bizarre thing, but- Why, why do you say silverware? Because there's no food available. Like, so you have, let's have all this silverware out here, but there's no food, like, I guess, Oh, okay. Maybe something like that, but I'm probably reading that completely wrong. Admission is free for all guests, but there is no food. We know anything about Wichita State? Was there some groundbreaking thing that happened there that we should know about? I don't know anything about Kansas. <laughs> 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 I have no clue. <laughs> Sorry to all the Kansas folks out there, but I have no idea. Kansas is the dance from there. Market Street, just off 21st Street. To what specifically is that museum dedicated? No, there's no food. I'm thinking like Kansas City Barbecue. I don't know. It's just too easy, but I don't know. I just feel like, wouldn't that be such a, like, a a whole thing for a museum to do? Be like, let's have a museum dedicated to barbecue, but you can't have any of it. (laughs) Like, that would just seem so rude. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. Let's see. I'm I'm trying to parse the information to see if there's any other clues. Bluff and Kellogg, why would he in- include that information if it wasn't relevant? Because we don't know anything about Kansas. Is Kellogg something to do with like a cereal? I don't know. I'm just throwing ideas out Maybe. There. Yeah, I have, no, I have no idea. Or the Marcus Welcome Center just off 21st Street. That just might be just trying to pin the location of it. I'm not sure. Which ones are relevant and which ones are not. Because the things that stick out are the Wichita State. We don't know anything happened there. We don't know that. The next piece of information is Bluff and Kellogg. Do we want to take anything from there? And then what is the Marcus Welcome Center? Do we know somebody famous called Marcus? No. I really think the main hint here is the last sentence with that there is no food available in the museum. Okay. But I just kind of... So thinking of something dedicated to silverware? Silverware or like napkins or like, I don't know, like something where you might expect to see food there, but there isn't. <laughs> <laughs> 
kind of thing. He's trying to keep her focused. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, fine. I, I'm fine with that. Given that we don't know. What do you what What do you want to go with? Silverware, napkins. Not, not napkins. I mean, I, maybe silverware. I don't know. Yeah, let's go with silverware. Let's okay, go. let's go with silverware. Good guess. I, li- I like your logic, but it's not correct. So pass to Dan. This is very annoying to me because it's a fast food restaurant that started in Wichita, and I'm trying to remember which one it is. Various things that are in my mind are White Castle, Pizza Hut, or Domino's. And I'm just like, I'm literally just trying to remember because I remember knowing that one of these major fast food chains started in Wichita. I'm going to say Pizza Hut. All right. Yeah. So the building, the first location of it was founded by the Carney brothers at the corner of Bluff and Kellogg and then moved entirely. I think it's been moved twice, but now it's, I think, in that place. I just took that wording right from their website. Yeah. But there is no food available there. So if you get hungry while there, you might have to order from somewhere like, say, Domino's. It's Pizza Hut. Okay. (laughs) Oh, nice job, Dan. That was like... If John Walker is listening, this is the listen to your first instinct. <laughs> or that, that was my first thought. All right. Now Dan and Nick to try and steal from Jayanti. Alfred Hitchcock's Shadow of a Doubt got its lone Oscar nomination for Gordon McDonald's original screen story, but that scenario was turned into a screenplay by three credited writers, Hitchcock's wife, Alma Revel, Meet Me in St. Louis author Sally Benson, and what Pulitzer-winning playwright? This writer may have been responsible for the film's success at bottling the idyllic small-town ambiance of its Santa Rosa, California setting. So I love this movie, and I'm pretty sure it's Thornton Wilder who okay. did Our Town, Our Town. And, and other small-town things. But that that is my recollection from just my knowledge of the movie. I am not familiar. I mean, I've heard of the film before, but I'm not familiar with this at all, and... I 100% trust your uh, knowledge. You seem to have a good feeling right off the bat. So, All right. Uh, we'll say Thornton Wilder. Is that right, Chanti? It's right. I think you got it right. <laughs> yeah, you kind of, you kind of <laughs> nodded. <laughs> I mean, Dan also loves Hitchcock movies. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure he, I was quite sure he would get this one. Yeah. You did kind of give a visible reaction when he said Thornton Wilder. <laughs> <laughs> Not the best at playing poker. <laughs> yeah. All right. But you do get a bonus. Here it is. What other Pulitzer winning novelist? I say other novelist because even though Thornton Wilder did win two Pulitzers as a playwright, he also won as a novelist. He was very versatile. Uh, oh. What what other Pulitzer winning novelist earned a Best Original Story Oscar nomination for Hitchcock's Lifeboat? Oh, my gosh. I know that I should have studied more. I've forgotten about this. I know that some of his novels were inspired, some of his movies were inspired by the Kai Smith. She's British, though, so I don't think she'd want a Pulitzer. What other Pulitzer winning lifeboat? Can't think of anyone else later. I'm just going to go with Capote, even though I know it's wrong. Okay, yeah, this is someone, both a Pulitzer winner and a Nobel laureate, in fact, who I think got two or three Oscar nominations, but isn't really known for his film work. His name is John Steinbeck. Oh, okay. All right. And to finish out the round and move on to the only somewhat hard round, we'll have Jayanthi and Dan to steal from Nick. Okay. Nina Flowers, Pandora, Box, and Yara Sophia were the first three winners of what title on RuPaul's Drag Race? 
This is referring specifically to the US version, if that makes a difference. So I only know one title, which is Miss Congeniality. <laughs> That's the one thing I know. And the only reason I know it is because a local Columbus drag queen won it on a later episode. And I've, I've never watched the show. So I don't know of any of the titles. So should we just go with that? I have nothing else to contribute. <laughs> sure. Let's just go with that. Right. Miss Congeniality. Final answer. Is that right, Nick? It is right. Nice job. This one did. I'm sorry, Mo, Mo Hart is the Columbus? No, Nina West. Nina uh, West, okay. Uh, who is also a Denison alum. Oh, nice. Yeah. So, yeah, Miss Congeniality. Throughout the various seasons of the show, it's been determined in different ways. In the earlier seasons, it was voted by fans. And then after... Oh, I believe it was season nine. There was a contestant called Valentina who was very controversial, but a very big fan favorite. So she definitely wasn't the most congenial, but she got the title of Miss Congeniality solely because she was fan favorite. So it kind of got relabeled to Miss Fan Favorite from then on. And then starting season 10 onward, and I don't believe this has changed, the other queens on the cast now vote for who's Miss Congeniality. Nice one, Dan. All right, I'm just going to quickly get a bottle of water. I'll be right back and then we can move into the next round. I'm going to run to the bathroom. Yeah, this is fun. This is fun. This is fun. I was like, oh, I was like the star hint. I was like, I know Dan's probably going to figure it out with Twink and Star make that connection. <laughs> yeah. After the first round, I thought, oh my God, I can't get anything. But this is. Yeah. yeah. Oh, <laughs> I felt so annoyed about missing Megan Stalzard. Oh, that bums me out, but oh well. Yeah. Great writing, Yugesh. Yeah. Yeah, as always. Thank you. Stories. Yeah, this has actually been a reasonably fast-moving taping so far. Like, I'd, yeah. it, I mean, it'll, you know, probably take up the, the full time, but I don't think we're going to go way over time or anything like that. I mean, I'm fine with it. Yeah, I don't think I'll need until 45, so. Yeah. <laughs> I'll 6.20 my time right now, so. That was my outer limit, so it's fine. It's fine, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the earlier we get done, the more of the all-star game I'll be able to see. But I mean, I'm just... <laughs> How long do you take to edit it and all that stuff? I mean, it, it varies a bit. I'm actually, but I mean, this, yeah, it also kind of depends a bit on how kind of fun it is. Like the ones that are more fun are a lot quicker to edit. Yeah. But I mean, there's still, there's two ahead of this that are, have been recorded and not released yet. One of them is a rough cut completed. I'm just refining it now. And the other one will, will go pretty quickly, I think. But so, I mean, it's, it's not going to be like a six month waiting time like it has been in the past. It's just going to be like within a month or so. Yeah. Oh, and I also have uh, these are ghost pepper almonds. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you can yeah. just justify uh, my bottle of water, perhaps. <laughs> All right. OK, so at the end of that round, the scores are a little bit of separation. Dan at 9.1, Jayanti at 6.0, Nick at 3.2. But again, point values are going up, so those gaps can easily be, very quickly be uh, erased. So the questions will now be worth four points as a seal, three as a specialist, two as a bonus. And we will begin with Jayanti and Nick to try and seal from Dan. The three major stage musicals for which Stephen Sondheim is the credited lyricist, but not the credited composer, are West Side Story, Gypsy, and Do I Hear a Waltz. Name the primary composer for any two of those three shows. Ooh. Ooh. I should have studied some Sondheim knowing it was there. Yeah. I didn't do that. <laughs> uh... I don't know. Did he have any kind of frequent collaborator that we should know about? I don't know. I'm not. And I'm always like, 
confused, like with Candor and Ebb and Lerner and Lowe, I'm not sure who's like the composer. I'm assuming one's the composer and one's like the librettist or something, but I could be wrong. I'm just trying to think of notable composers. So I'm wondering which decade this would have been. So, so West Side Story, well, Rita Moreno won an Oscar for her uh, film adaptation. What would that have been in the 60s? 60s, right? Probably. And then I'm not familiar with Do I Hear Walt at all. I've never heard of that before. Gypsy, maybe around the same time, 60s, 70s, maybe. I have yeah, no idea. Yeah. So do we know who are like the famous composers from that time? Right. I think that's probably the way we can go. Yeah. I, because otherwise we don't have specific knowledge. Right. So, so I think we need to go more with the, the decade and kind of who was famous at that time. Like Andrew Lloyd Webber. But I mean, that, I feel like he might have been a little bit too recent um, for that. But maybe somebody American because he's British. So yeah. Like, like Bernstein or somebody. I don't know. I'm just throwing ideas. That might be a good one. Anybody else that we can think of? I mean, he, it could be Andrew Lloyd Webber. I'm just, I'm just saying maybe. Yeah, I like. But I don't think so. I don't. I don't know why I don't think I like Bernstein. I just cannot. I, I'm just completely blanking on any other composers from around that time. The era fits right. The timeline fits. So yeah, maybe just trying to think of other musicals around that time and then trying to see if they're like I can remember their composers yeah, from then. Yeah, yeah. Right. Maybe, I don't know. Like, I'm just the problem with me is once I have a thought in my head, it's very hard for me to just take that out and then move on to something else. I just go keep going down that same path even if it's wrong. <laughs> Yeah. Do you want to try like Lerner and Bernstein? I I have no idea. Oh, but any of any one. Any name, the, name the primary composer for any two. Of, yeah. So we need to. You just need one, right? I think it's one composer for two, or do we need two? So what do you? I oh. mean, the name the primary composer for any two. I, technically, you could try giving one name for two. Yeah. Um, it, it isn't that isn't ruled out by the question, although it also doesn't rule out. There are three separate names and you need two of them. Yeah, that's... Uh, okay. I guess... Right. I don't know. Do you yeah. want to try with one and then see if our luck works out or do you want to try for two? I think one is better because if one is wrong and one is right... Yeah. Then you have... You know what I mean? But you then if we... Wrong. I guess if we just provide one and they only, you know, that's compose right. one, then that would okay. technically be incorrect as well. Uh, let's just okay. go with Bernstein. I think your guess is probably the best. All right, I will withhold comment on that and pass it to Dan. Okay. Well, you got one of the two. And in fact, Bernstein and Lerner did have a musical that they did together with Lerner. Lerner was a lyricist. They did a show called 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue that was a huge flop. So Bernstein did West Side Story. Julie Stein did Gypsy. And Richard Rogers was his collaborator for oh. Dwight. Which is a musical that I saw at Encores, and I totally get why it doesn't work, but I love that score. And Sondheim has one of my favorite rhymes in that score. In the title songs, he says, such lovely blue Danube music, how can you be still? It's so good. Anyway, at least I'm happy that Lerner and Bernstein wouldn't have been right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Totally the right time. Totally the right time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but Lerner was a lyricist and a, a screenwriter. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. Also wrote the screenplay for the film versions of. Um, so they were Richard Rogers all together. Ah, when you said Lerner and Lowe should have gone with other. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Oh well. Yeah. At least Thank you were on the right track, so that's 
That's when they go low, we go learner. <laughs> yeah. That I think that's the episode title there. <laughs> but yeah, I think yeah, Learner was the credited screenwriter as well in the films of An American in Paris, Gigi, and My Fair Lady. I won a couple Oscars there. But yeah, I mean, episode twenty-three of this podcast, I think I asked about Do I Hear a Waltz, which was adapted from the David Lean film Summertime, and it was from that period where Rogers. Well, Hammerstein had died, basically, and Rogers was still composing, so he was looking for new lyricists to partner with, and Hammerstein had been Sondheim's mentor, and so, you know, Sondheim, it seemed like a collaboration, on paper, it seemed like, you know, the greatest possible collaboration, but didn't produce all that memorable result. All right, Dan and Nick now to try and steal from Jayanti. Confusingly, Alfred Hitchcock directed two espionage thrillers released in 1936, Sabotage, based on Joseph Conrad's A Secret Agent, and Secret Agent, which is not based on The Secret Agent. Rather, it is based on which famous author's short stories about a British spy named Ashenden, who, like employees of NAQT, reports to a shadowy figure known only as R. (laughs) Okay, interesting. Uh... Shade is thrown. So, British author from the early well it's about a british spy so i, I mean technically it could i guess i guess that's true but most just, likely is yeah someone from i wonder if like arthur conan doyle like wrote maybe more than just uh, uh sherlock holmes yeah what fa- Ian, famous Ian, Ian fleming is late for this right yeah ian fleming i think his first book was written in the 50s yeah or the 40s maybe but um, i don't Trying to think about even into the 19th century. I guess like Kipling comes, to, that just doesn't seem like Kipling's works. Right. Well, he did write short stories. So that yeah. is in his favor, but other sort of British short story authors. I'm trying to see if the uh, reports to a shadowy figure known only as R is maybe. I kind a- of like Kipling more than Doyle, just because of the short stories. And he did have kind of more variety in his writing okay. um, but i you know i'm happy to let's give it another, another sort of tolkien that would have been too early for tolkien right yeah i think so because he okay. was in in school in the 30s or something like that i feel like there's someone else that i'm not i mean that's too early for agatha christie yeah i feel like that's going to be like a, a sort of literary name more yeah. than I'm trying to think of maybe there's like a wordplay, like a Shenden is like a anagram of something, maybe like, right. uh, I think that might be digging it a little bit too deep, but. It's anagram to dash, Nene. I think I'm, I, I, I don't think Steve- I could think of anyone else. Stevenson, Robert Louis Stevenson. Maybe. I just trying to think of other short story writers, but I, I, I kind of like, I don't, I kind of like Kipling. Okay, we can go with that if you want. Do you have a? Do you have anyone? That you I have like? no preference whatsoever. I was just trying to throw out names of short story authors around that yeah. time. All right, we'll say Kipling. All right. So yeah, first of all, uh, just to to clarify, again, the wording of this question is meant as an affectionate homage to NAQT's Robert Hensel, <laughs> not any kind of insult. Uh, and I believe he is uh, stepping. Recently announced, he was stepping down after a very long and distinguished career. So again, yes, just a, a humorous homage. <laughs> Humorous homage to him, not not any kind of uh, mean-spirited thing. Yeah, so I, I wrote a paper in grad school. Kind of, I reviewed the literature on the spy literature, spy genre, which is fairly recent. You can maybe trace antecedents in like the Book of Joshua or whatever, but as a genre, it pretty much dates to the late 
19th, early 20th century. And Kipling's big contribution to that was Kim. That is generally often held up as a work of espionage fiction. So he was related to the genre, but he's not the correct answer here. So pass to Jayanti. I'm getting very confused. I, I should know this. I'm supposed to be a specialist, but I can't remember it. I, I was I, the only person that's coming to mind that doesn't make sense. So I'm going to go with Highsmith, but I don't think it's Highsmith. Yeah, I think her career. No, she's inspired a lot. She's inspired a lot of his movies, but I don't think this is the one. So. Yeah, I think her career was also a bit later, I believe, although I'm not 100% certain. Yeah, this is uh, Ashenden was the creation of W. Somerset Mom. Oh. Yeah, who was played in the film by a very young sir, our future sir, John Gilgood. A uh, very rare lead performance in a film for him. Yes. I kind of sort of remember reading about this years ago, but hasn't stuck, obviously. All right. Well, you guys, you, you answered the first 10 questions. Each of the first 10 questions in this in round one and two was answered by someone. So you're doing pretty well overall. All right. Jayanti and Dan now to try and steal from Nick. Paper Mario Sticker Star won handheld or portable game of the year at the 16th edition of what annual award show arranged by the prestigious Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences? It is held in conjunction with an annual conference or summit where in 2010, Jesse Schell gave the celebrated Design Outside the Box speech. Both the awards and the conference are known by an acronym that also spells something necessary to play most Mario Party games. All right, let's read this one. What is the acronym? What is necessary to play Mario Party games? I don't play them. We, W-I-I, that could be a an acronym. It cool. sounds like a sort of thing that yeah. would be but, the name of a conference. Well, here is the name of the award show, correct? Of what annual yes. award show? Are right, right. Uh, so it would... We'd have to expand the acronym. No, I'm just looking for the name by which it's commonly known, which is the acronym. Okay. Oh, so like the Emmy or the Tony, like yeah. yeah. So what kind of uh, interactive arts and sciences? I don't know. I mean, I think I think that's like just the the group that gives out awards yeah, yeah. to new games. Yeah, yeah like the Hugo or Obi or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know what kind of design awards. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of things associated with video games that feel like they could be names of. A joystick uh, or, award. <laughs> that's a that's a long acronym. <laughs> the junior. I don't know. It's a console prize. <laughs> Console's not terrible, right? I mean, especially if they kind of dump out the last vowel, like C O N S L or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to think of peripheral things that go with video games that might fit, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know if this right path to take, but just throwing something out there. Um, uh, hands. You need hands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Our acronym also says something necessary to play most Mario Party games. Oh, what's a controller, right? Is it Does it have a specific name? I don't know. Is it, I don't know. I don't know. I like Wii and console of our two. So I will narrow it down to those two and let you pick. Can we flip a coin again? Just, uh, you, you pick. Oh, heads will go with console and tails will go with we. Oh, I don't know where the... <laughs> All right, heads heads we go with what? Console. It is tails. All right. <laughs> go with we. All right, you're locking in we? All right, what do you think, Nick? So I don't think it's we. I do not know this cold. Paper Mario Sticker Star is my least favorite game in the franchise. So I definitely 
did not like revise that. I probably should have revised more about this subject or this game before appearing on here. The thing that sticks out to me is something necessary to play most Mario Party games. And the reason why I think it was specified maybe Mario Party as opposed to other like Mario games would be that you typically play with friends. So maybe something along the lines of like friends or pals. And I'm really stuck on pals because the P could definitely stand for like portable and that acronym. So with nothing else to go on, I'm going to say pals. Okay. Yeah. I realize now the wording was a little more ambiguous than I wanted it to be in terms of something necessary to play. I was thinking kind of in universe or like within the game, what do you need? And I was specifically thinking of the dice block, which is used to play many games. Ah, uh, okay. But yes, they, it's apparently, a, I, I think it's more of a backronym than an acronym for design, innovate, communicate, entertain. But it's uh, the, the summit is the DICE Summit and the awards are the DICE Awards. Nice. No DICE, though. Yeah. <laughs> I see. I see reasoning. Okay. Next question. Jayanthi and Nick to try and steal from Dan. Newspaper editor William Allen White first gained nationwide fame for the 1896 anti-populist editorial, What's the Matter with Kansas, and won a Pulitzer for the 1923 editorial to an anxious friend and a second Pulitzer for his posthumously published memoir. Renowned for his wisdom and eloquence, he was dubbed the sage of which Kansas city, where he lived his entire life and where he entertained presidents and other famous folk in his family home, Red Rocks. That's not the Red Rocks in Colorado, just to be yeah. fair. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so I'm just trying to think of Kansas cities. Cities, like what, Lawrence? There's even a Manhattan, Kansas. Did you know that? Yes. That's, is it that where Kansas State is? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Um, I had an ex-boyfriend who lived there and he was an asshole. So anyways. Uh, well, uh, I'm also from Kansas, Idaho, so for anyone listening. There's the one... I could be misremembering this, where he yeah. lived his entire in cold blood by Truman Capote. That yeah. was set. In, do you remember which city it was? That's a good idea, but I don't remember. It's a small. Because I, th- I think it was just like a smallish town, but I thought it had a presidential connection for some reason. Oh my god! Um, where he entertained presidents and other famous folk. Oh, I like that train of thought. Hold on. Smiley, I Why were they entertained presidents and other famous folk? Family home or Red Rocks. Who are the pre- is there a president from Kansas and what is their hometown? You know me, I have no clue. <laughs> That's why I rely on you. <laughs> Sage of maybe it's like a alliteration thing, so maybe like a another S city, but I can't think of any. Okay, let's just name all our, all the Kansas cities we know, right? Topeka, Wichita, Wichita Manhattan, Lawrence. <laughs> Yeah. Kansas City. It's not going to be Kansas City. I think Leavenworth, isn't that in Kansas? The what was that? Leavenworth, the prison, isn't that in Kansas? I have no idea. I think so. I'm wondering whether maybe that's the answer because it's a prison and it's famous and it's, I don't know. That might be it. I, I have nothing else to go on. I'm not 100% sure it's in Kansas even, but I think let's go with that. Just because yeah. it's a prison and it could be like, you know, there could be some famous inmate or something like that. I don't know. I'm just sure. Like, throwing that something good to me all right we're gonna go we're gonna go with Leavenworth. all right you kind of had to pick a path of logic to go on and uh right? mean, no it's not right <laughs> 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 so, 
White, White was the editor of the Emporia Gazette, uh, and assuming he wasn't carpetbagging or zooming in from a different city, I will say Emporia. Yeah, the Sage of Emporia. And on, on behalf of on behalf of Kansans everywhere, Nick, I apologize for our assholes. <laughs> <laughs> is Leavenworth in Kansas though? It is. It is. Right? Okay. It is. So at least we were off completely off base, so that's good. Yes. I guess the, yeah, there's no, I don't know. I'm pretty sure there's not a sage of Leavenworth. There is also no Birdman of Leavenworth, even though the Birdman of Alcatraz was not actually allowed to keep birds in Alcatraz. Like he got that nickname because of what he did in Leavenworth. He, he kept birds at Leavenworth, but for some reason he's called the Birdman of Alcatraz. But, yeah. Okay. Cool. So Dan extends his lead and now Dan and Nick's turn to try and steal from Jayanti. Thank you, <laughs> All right. Only three sites, well, technically three and a half, it's complicated, have ever been delisted as UNESCO World Heritage Sites. The first of these to lose its status was a sanctuary for the Arabian Oryx, located in which nation? So UNESCO, it's like, do you know what the acronym stands for fully? United Nations ESCO. Uh, Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not to be confused with United Nations VSCO. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. UN Crisco. Um so I wonder if something would ever be delisted if it was like not a UN country anymore. Has that ever happened? I don't I mean, well, I would say this. Is there any spot on earth that isn't claimed by a UN country? So I think even if a country kind of breaks away or claims independence, the United Nations is still going to recognize that place just as part of a different country. Like if it were in Western Sahara, UN would probably just call it Morocco. Yeah. And then the Arabian Oryx side. So it's, I assume it's a wildlife sanctuary for an animal that I've never heard of, (laughs) which is my favorite kind of sanctuary. (laughs) 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 So really it's just kind of thinking about where might there be, or at least for me, it's about thinking about where might there have been a sanctuary and my guess is that it lost its status because like either it died out completely in which case What's there was no purpose um, no, or so. it like it totally like you know came back to thrive and therefore was no longer necessary yeah let's go with that more optimistic okay right. <laughs> so probably someplace that's going to pour money into preservation yeah and i have no knowledge of like what that could be or what country that would be thinking somewhere in maybe northeast africa okay i mean tunisia but i i really have i'm really Libya, chad i don't know i can't really yeah puzzle anything out of here i trust your knowledge more than i do and it's really just naming a naming country yeah something like this i mean it could also be like jordan or like someplace there i mean they have like jordan or you know i i want to say jordan they are not like horrible. <laughs> yeah, sure. All right, we'll say Jordan. All right, good guess, but not correct. Jayanti? I am going to go with, you know, a lot of times things are delisted because there's conflict there. They're not able to, there's no upkeep. They don't have the resources to preserve it and still be on the site. And I'm going to go with the clue of Arabian and where there's something in the Arabian Peninsula where there's conflict right now. So I'm going to go with Yemen. You are closer geographically than they were, but still one country over. It's Oman. Oman, yeah. Oman. I was 50-50 between the two, but okay. But you didn't have the coin, so. Yeah, I <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, very well, good. How will, how will a cashless society in the future decide things? <laughs> <laughs>
All right. Jayanti and Dan now to try and steal from Nick. What is the subtitle of the RuPaul's Drag Race companion show that just earned its sixth consecutive nomination in the Outstanding Unstructured Reality Program Emmy category? It is currently the defending champion in that category, having won for the first time in 2021. And Dan and I are trying to... Uh, is, right? this the all, is this the All-Stars version of it because that I mean that is like where they just keep bringing people back I know there is a RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars sort of separate competition show so that's that's about all I've got well you have more than I do and you were right <laughs> the last time too about the RuPaul thing so I'm with the miscongeniality so I think I have to probably defer to you as a subject matter expert on this all right we'll say RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars so the good news is that that is a show, but <laughs> the bad news is it's not the show I'm asking about here. So. Okay, so assuming I'm processing this correctly, I do believe this is referring to the show. So on the show, like the main RuPaul's Drag Race, after the judges give their critiques and while they deliberate, the queens go backstage and just kind of kiki and enjoy a cocktail or whatever. And those are filmed in 30-minute episodes, and those are called Untucked. So I'll say RuPaul's Drag Race Untucked. And you'll say that correctly. Bye. Yes. And then season two, the prime season of all, used to have unlimited cocktails. And I'm sure y'all know how that went. So they had to limit it to a strict amount for future seasons. But those glory days. I just like the kiki and cocktails. Yeah. That sounds so fun. Yeah. I will say that I feel like my biggest disconnect from all my all my other gays is, is I just just can't get into RuPaul's Drag Race. Someone tried to convince me once and they were, I, I said like, well, I don't really like drag shows and I don't really like reality TV shows. And they were like, yeah, you know, most people like, but this is really different. Like, I think you'll still really like it. it just, it's not like either one of those. And then I watched an episode and he was like, what do you think? And I said, it's like, they took all the parts of a drag show and a reality show that I don't like and put them together. like." Oh, that's so, you know. It was too much of a drag for you, Dan. I was going to say that. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just go forward. All right. A wide spectrum of opinions of RuPaul's Drag Race yeah. presented here. Yes. You can write to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Jayanthi and Nick now to try and steal from Dan. All right. Let's do it. Okay. The Basque Epata Danza. Not Epata Nixa, which it read at one point, but the Basque Apata Dansa, the Balinese Baris, the Indian Shadsuk Menciem, and the Arab Yaula are all traditional folk dances that are danced using what? Shadsuk Menciem. I've never heard of that Indian thing. I was trying to use that. I don't know what. A Basque? The Bari. Shadsuk Menciem? M-Y-N-S-I-E-M. I'm trying to think. I've never, I mean, I know Hindi pretty well, and I can't parse this at all. Yeah, I can't, like, derive any, like, etymological thing from It's an accessory that people dance with, right? I'm guessing. What was that? Like, some kind of accessory, maybe, like, Yeah, but. Maybe, like, a tambourine or something? Maybe. I kind of feel like. If there's maybe like a musical instrument or an accessory that is like common in all of these cultures and we go with that or maybe just think of something that's like completely out of the box like why in the hell would they have a folk dance using something like that it's just something that's common a musical instrument that's common yeah 
I like that train of thought a lot more. And I don't know why tamarind is sticking to me, but baris, I don't know. I'm trying to see how, how different ways of pronouncing the Indian word to try and parse it and, and distill that information. So, shad sup. Sup is happy, but I don't know is it happy cake? No. <laughs> shad sup. I don't know what that means at all. I'm just, you know, a lot of like the Northern Indian dances and stuff are influenced by like Middle Eastern thing because they came, you know, the Mughals, they came in. And so, so I'm trying to think of something that came from the Middle East to the thing, to India and went on to Indonesia. And that's why I'm saying maybe it's possibly the tambourine, but I don't know. Okay. I, I got nothing to go on. So if your gut says tambourine. Confidence, but I mean, I'm a, yeah, I, but I got nothing else to contribute. Oh, really. go tambourine. Is that what you're locking in? Yeah. Okay. Good guess, but not correct. Dan? So, so I, I really left with just kind of grasping of things because I'm pretty sure what I sent in involved English Isles rather than just folk dancing kind of across the spectrum. So I don't know any of these traditions. And so mentally, I'm going to try to tie it back to at least something that comes from the British Isles. And we've done Morris dancing. So they also do dances with swords. So I'm going to say swords. Okay. I, I, I believe that all I got from you was just folk dancing. I might be, I might be, have, I might have copied and pasted it into my thing wrong, though it's possible. But, well, it'll, it'll have to do. Um, we can revisit It'll give that us that. a chance to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, yeah, Shadzuk Mintiam, I think it's specifically from Meghalaya, that region of India. Is it a bamboo stick, then? A what, you said? A bamboo stick? Uh, no, I mean, that is used a lot in, uh, you all, I mean, yeah, Dundee Aras, and a lot of Indian dances use sticks. So, yeah, I, this is also something universal. <laughs> I, I briefly thought about saying gravity. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, I think... That so basically these are all what are called weapons dances. They're all danced using weapons. And I I think I will give credit for swords. Yeah. yeah. Um, nice job, Dan. <laughs> all right. So Dan and Nick to try and steal from Jayanti. Maybe the shortest question of the game. <laughs> Deriving from seven members of BTS. Deriving from an archaic phrase meaning golden apple or apple of gold what is the italian word for tomato so gold uh, in spanish oh, is oro. Oh, it's got to be pomodoro right yes yeah, so like pomodoro yeah. technique with so the, palm uh, and de oro yeah apple like, of gold so yeah, pomodoro. Pom- t- yep i love it all right pomodoro all right is that right chanty yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the contemporary Italian word for tomato is like mela, but certainly, yeah, pomo is an older one. Oh, Simi- oh, yeah. yeah, similar to for French pom, like uh, pom de terre is what they call uh, potatoes in France, but literally apples of the earth. And yeah, oro is, yeah, in Spanish, Italian, same word. In French, it's or, which is almost the same word. Yeah. Note to all listeners, do not substitute potatoes for apples in recipe. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it depends what you know, which recipe. <laughs> All right, to finish out the round now, Jayanti and Dan to try and steal from Nick. Within the chronology of the Saw franchise, John Kramer's Start of Darkness, that's a TV tropes derived term, occurs after his wife miscarries their child due to a violent encounter with a thief who was stealing methadone from the homeward bound clinic. 
That thief, a drug addict and boyfriend of Amanda Young, first seen in Saw 4, shares his first and last name with what pseudonymous newspaper columnist and personal hero of mine, whose slogan was, fighting ignorance since 1973, it's taking longer than we thought. Ooh, it's a long one. Hmm. Again, I can't get into it, having never seen any of these Saw. um... Saw it? No? (laughs) <laughs> franchises. So I'm trying to think about a newspaper pseudonyms since 1973. Pretty much anyone who fights ignorance is my personal hero. <laughs> That's good. It's a worthy cause. Do you know any other sort of like newspaper columnists who kind of... It's taking longer. The problem is it's a pseudonym, right? So I'm trying to think about... What is it? It's taking longer than we thought. What is that? Oh, just that like we're still fighting, fighting it. You know, we started in 73 and now it's it hasn't stopped. So we're still fighting. Um, I think that's just, that's all it's doing. So male name pseudonyms for newspaper columnists. I'm having a hard time coming up with them. I don't know. Do you know any pseudonyms at all? I mean, I can only think of like advice columnists like Ann Landers and... Yeah, but it's obviously... It's not. Yeah, uh, because it says his wife, right? Right. So I don't know. You may have to come up with a... A fake name and a fake first name, but at least let's make it funny and punny. So, <laughs> or we right. could just pick Jimmy Lee. What? <laughs> we, we could just pick Jimmy Lee. Oh, oh goodness, I have no idea. It's funny how Nick, 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 and I have opposite interests, but we're <laughs> the same team, and it it works great though because we have opposite interests. Uh, do you do you have it? Pick a pick a name. You pick a first name. I'll pick a last name. How about that? Sure. I'm going to take Jack. Jack. Yeah. Stone. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Not as good as any a pseudonym that you, you could have picked up as a guess, but unfortunately not correct. So, Nick? So, yeah. So, um, this character, you know, at the beginning of the question causes John Kramer's wife, Jill, to miscarry. I'm like hesitating here because I am pulling a John Walker here and second guessing my uh, last name of choice. But in in Saw 4, he's basically the test subject of John Kramer's first test. Now I won't go into, you know, graphic detail or whatever, but it basically malfunctions and he eventually escapes the trap, but then falls into a pit of barbed wire. That's how he suffers his death. But I think his name is Cecil Adams. And Cecil Adams is also the name of the columnist of The Straight Dope in the Chicago Reader. Nice. That's correct, yeah. All right. So that was a very good round for Dan. Uh, Decently good round for Nick, unfortunately. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, a bit of a shutout for Chayanti. All right. So uh, when we go into the the final round, the super hard round, the scores stand at Dan 22.1, Nick 13.2, Jayanti 6.0. I've been at six for a while now, but it's fine. I'm just just, like super proud that none of us are at zero. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, no, you're all doing pretty well. And the point values will go up now to six for a steal, five for a specialist, three for a bonus. Is everyone ready to continue to the final round? Let's do it. It's fun. Yeah. All right. This is the super hard round. So the difficulty will take a step up and we'll it's begin with. Was not supposed to be difficult. They were difficult. <laughs> 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 yeah, those were the only somewhat hard questions. <laughs> okay, so Jayanti and Nick to try and steal from Dan. All nine seasons of the Little House on the Prairie TV series took place in Walnut Grove, Minnesota. However, only one of the nine books in the canonical book series was set there. Indeed, each of the first five books in that series is set in a different present-day state. Little House in the Big Woods in Wisconsin, Farmer Boy, which was about the childhood of Flora Ingalls Wilder's husband, Almanza Wilder, is set in his home state, New York. On the Banks of Plum Creek is the only one that's actually in Minnesota. And By the Shores of the Silver Lake and all of the succeeding volumes were set in present-day South Dakota. That leaves the flagship novel, Little House on the Prairie which occurs in what was commonly referred to as Indian Territory, but not Oklahoma, which is generally considered synonymous with Indian Territory. The title Little House stood rather in present-day Kansas, and specifically on the so-called diminished reserve belonging to which Native American tribe? Let me, I gotta scroll up my chat real quick. Okay. I want a short question like Pomodoro. (laughs) (laughs) Um... uh... That was a good, good one. <laughs> yeah, so. All right, I guess basically it boils down to which Native, Native, American, Native American tribe that is, I guess, closely associated with being in Kansas. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm trying to think if maybe, oh, sorry, what were you going to say? No, go ahead. I said it said not in present day Oklahoma. Is that a hint? Because it's, Oklahoma is like Cherokee country. So I was wondering why he's mentioning that. Yeah, I think maybe, yeah, to, to just shy away from any, like, Native American tribes that are probably most closely associated with Oklahoma. My thing is, are there any, like, I know that a decent amount of rivers and states are typically named after Native American tribes, right? Yeah. So maybe is there a river in Kansas that is named after that, named after a Native American tribe that can maybe, like, you know, get the ball rolling? To- yeah, it's a good idea, but I don't know enough about it. Honestly. I don't know either. I'm trying to see it. Maybe we can just take a hold on. Walnut Grove, Minnesota. I'm wondering whether any of the other pieces of information in the question are relevant. Yeah. I also, since it's a super hard one, I don't think it's going to be a fairly well known. Yeah. I'm wondering geography wise, does Utah border Kansas at all? No. Because Utes, I was thinking, no, right? I'm just trying to think of different tribes. I don't think so. I Um, can't have a map on the wall. But. No, I don't think so. I don't think there's any information in like the first half that was is really gonna. Um, we just really need a, a tribe from Kansas. Yeah, and I am unfortunately very ignorant. And it has this. to be from an obscure, uh, not obscure, a relatively less known tribe, because he's saying it's hard. That's what we're going with, right? Yeah, that's kind of what my logic is there. But um, hold on, what was? Because okay. like. The Sioux were North and South Dakota, right? Dakota, so, and yeah. yeah. Is Osage a tribe? But that's also not That's August Osage County. I think that's in Southern Oklahoma. Yeah, well, that's, that's Oklahoma. August Osage County. It's not the name of the tribe. It's the name of a yeah, 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 play. That's a <laughs> 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 what else uh, could be? Should we go with just something that we know in terms of a tribe, or should we go? Sure, I, do you, do you just, 
I sure if you could think of any. Oh, everything we like all the Cherokee and stuff. It's we don't we don't we think it's too it's not it's not right because Cherokee is mostly Oklahoma. That's right. why I, I honestly don't know enough. I don't have the depth of the knowledge to come up with something else. I don't think I do either. So I'm just pull a Jimmy Lee and say Cherokee. I, I don't. <laughs> sure. All right. Let's do that. So sure. you're, liking, you're liking in Cherokee. Sure. Yeah. All right, Dan. What do you think? So my knowledge of Native American tribes in Kansas is not as complete as it probably should be. I know the Shawnee were among uh, the earliest sort of relocated there. And my home high school district is Shawnee Mission, which is named after the mission that was there. But I, I think they were further west than there. The Pawnee are also around. There's the Wichita, which is where Wichita gets its name. And the, I think there were some Osage as well up there, but I, because it's the hard round and I may as well pick the most obscure one and the most fun to say, I'm going to go with Potawatomi. <laughs> I was just reading it. Oh, I was reading it because I was looking at, I was reading the Wikipedia article about the character of Tonto, which was said to be the son of a Potawatomi chief. I think that was more, I, yeah. So at least based on that, it's, I feel like they were more in like the Michigan area because that was where the Lone Ranger started in like Detroit and like the writers of it were from that area. But yeah, I remember actually, I, not this specific question, but the first time I wrote a question about like the settings of the Little House books and Michelle Lalonde, who, you know, is a big Little House, you know, Lord Ingalls Wilder Little House fan was like, no, it wasn't set in Kansas. It's set in Indian territory. And I was like, well, I was just going off Wikipedia. And she was like, oh, that's the problem. You know, you shouldn't trust Wikipedia. You know, I have, she was like, I have the annotated versions of all those books here. And so I'll, I'll check and I'll, I'll prove it was in Oklahoma. And a few minutes later, she came back and was like, I checked and uh, it's actually Kansas. You were right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's so the confusion was because the term Indian territory, you know, is considered synonymous with Oklahoma, but this was technically not that Indian territory, but the Osage diminished reserve. Okay. Who, Osage is the answer. Oh, God. Oh, no. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's okay. Yeah. Sorry. This Second is kind of happy. You're close. You're so close, but you don't get it. Anyway. This time you should have flipped a coin. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I guess. <laughs> when Dan says Shawnee, I was like, oh, it's probably them because Shawnee being the answer to two questions yeah. in the, the match. Um, why? Uh, I should have stuck to my guns, but I wasn't 100%. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. That's my bad, Jancy. But it's not your bad at all. We didn't know enough about it. Which is, yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I think this is kind of why I tell people to guess, because it kind of if there's something that's kind of bubbling up, but you're not sure about it, it at least yeah. forces you to say it. So in this case, if you just, you know, stuck with that. Yeah. It would have... mm-hmm. Hi, this is Future Yogesh, just wanting to give Dan his due. Although the Potawatomi people did originally live in the Great Lakes area during the 19th century, they were forced farther and farther west, and some did settle in Kansas. And I believe they gave their name to Potawatomi Creek, the site of the 1856 Potawatomi Massacre, during the so-called Bleeding Kansas era. Okay, so no one gets credit on that. And we go to the next question for Dan and Nick to try and seal from Jayanti. I apologize in advance for whatever pronunciation butchering ends up happening. (laughs) I try to read this. Okay, uh, Chimanga Ndi Moyo is a saying in Malawi that translates as what thing is life? This most common subsistence crop in Malawi is used to make 
Encima, a starchy, thick porridge, also known as ugali or about a dozen different other names in various parts of Africa. So African starchy foods. Um, this most, I, chimanga. Maybe they meant chimichanga. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, I can think about African starches. Taro, is that a thing that grows taro, in Africa? like maybe jicama, I think is like South American, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, but some of these things grow in multiple places, right? Like, Baobab is a, just a tree. I don't think the, it's a crop, right? Yucca, is that a thing that grows there? Yucca? That sounds more central south american I think, but I could, yeah i mean i don't know african cuisine at all and my hope is that some of these like you know maybe also have been you know that they've also been cultivated in africa as well yeah because um, if it's a thing that only exists in africa i probably i'm not sure i've heard of it and it's where is malawi uh it's there? in sort of like the if if it is narrowing down, it's like in the middle of the narrowing okay. down. Okay. So, <laughs> so yeah. like sort of central oh, Africa. Just central. I, I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> it's a thin strip. It's next to like Kenya. It's okay. like on the eastern side. Taro doesn't sound like a bad guess. I just, I cannot think of anything else. Or that doesn't differ in other means in various parts of Africa. Do you just want to go with tarot? Because sure. I, I I don't think I'm going to be able to help yeah. all. Okay. All right. We'll say tarot. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that is a starchy crop. That is, I think it's it's grown in many parts of Africa. It's also in in Asia quite a bit. I've had like tarot pie and things yeah. like that from Asian cuisine. Yeah. Good guess. Not correct. Pass to Jayanti. Wow. Okay. You know, usually the most common crop in Africa is all this cassava, which is used to make various curvy, starchy things, but I'm not sure whether because this is a hard run, whether to go with the obvious or whether to go for something more obscure. Oh, that's where I'm again, I'm like a 50-50 again, and none of my 50-50s have gone my way today at all. So, <laughs> because I mean, cassava is not necessarily, I'm wondering why you specifically picked Malawi, because Malawi, I mean, cassava is common throughout Africa. It's not necessarily just in Malawi. But Malawi is also known for its big lake. And I'm wondering whether that's got something to do with Nsima, which and so I'm gonna go with something, I'm gonna go with rice actually, because when I had Ugali in Tanzania, it was made like it was like a rice cake. So I'm gonna go with rice. Okay. Yeah. So Again, from kind of a metagaming perspective, this is more common in kind of the first round where sort of the advantage to the person who picked the specialist topic is knowing their specialist topic. That gives them an advantage over the others. I rarely write questions in the third round that are that way, but this is one of those because this is hard to deduce, but Jayanti's topic, I can give away now, it's the last question, was the impact of the Colombian exchange on food. So chili, yeah, so chili peppers native to the Americas, but made their way to India tomatoes native to the Americas, but became a huge thing in Italy. What's the most common or biggest, you know, staple grain that came from the Americas? Corn. 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 Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Maize. I think in Malawi, they would say maize, but it's equivalent to what we call corn. Maybe rice came from China or something like that. That's what I was thinking. I mean, China through, you know, through India and then it came back to Africa is what I was thinking. But ah, I knew it wasn't cassava. But I went with another uh, another grain. Anyway, 
I went against the grain. And- <laughs> <laughs> there we go. You you win the pun game at least. <laughs> Do I get five points for that? No. <laughs> For my corny jokes. (laughs) It's like the miscongeniality thing. It's like a competition alongside it. Yeah. All right. Uh, Are we going to do untucked? Should I get the cocktails ready? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, Jayanti and Dan to try and steal from Nick. So in episode 30, when Ben Rothenberg picked RuPaul's Drag Race as one of his categories, I noted that the top prize for winning had risen from $20,000 in season one to $100,000, which was true at the time. However, as of the most recent season, season 14, the top prize is $150,000 and the runner-up gets $50,000. This bump in prize money was made possible by a monetary infusion sponsored by what appropriate app? Ooh, I know that. Thank you, <laughs> I mean, my first thought is grinder, but that feels incorrect. <laughs> Made possible by monitoring if sponsored by what appropriate app? What appropriate app? I don't know. I mean, is it obviously like a dating app kind of thing, or is it like but, a. Yeah, I'm trying to think about it. I mean, like, I mean, grinder is the only one that feels specific to gay men. Right. I mean, all the other ones are open one way or another. I'm trying to think if there are any other apps that, you know, does RuPaul do any, like, is RuPaul an ambassador for any particular, like, internet brand thing? I can't think of any apps related to drag performance, specifically. Unless it's, like, unless it's, unless it's, like, a, like, music kind of thing. Spotify or something like that? I don't know. Yeah. I don't Uh, know. Or, I think... Like Shazam or Spotify or something like that. But I mean, yeah, it's just, I that's, that. just, I that's just lip syncing. Top prize and 50. Who? I don't know who the sponsors would be. Like what appropriate app? I'm trying to think what what is appropriate for. Is it like a makeup kind of app or because it's like drag queen? I don't know. I'm just. Yeah, I have no idea that. what these apps would be for, for makeup. I mean, unless it's like Snapchat and it's like the filter and there's like a drag queen filter, like. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, I do like that. Or is there like a streaming? Or is it like a streaming kind of, or maybe like TikTok or something? But TikTok doesn't make sense because it's a Chinese app. I'm just trying to think something like that. They love the gays in China. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just wondering whether it's something like that where you can make like little videos or snippets or something like that. And I mean, I think Grinder or again, that feels like they're not going to do. They're not going to like put that into, I mean, they're going to be advertising for it. And there's no way that a primetime TV show is going to be advertising for Grindr. So Snapchat is, I think, the best thing that I've said so far. All right, we'll do Snapchat. All right. Nick, what do you think? Uh, So I think I might have to ask Dan to break out the coin because I am turning between two. So, yeah, so... A big issue in the drag race fandom has been the fact that the prize for winning has been $100,000 going on for almost, what, 10 seasons at that point, and it has become, you know, a worldwide phenomenon, so I was glad to see the $150,000 boost. And I remember, like, in the lip sync at the finale, they said that it was sponsored by blah, 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 and the monetary infusion sponsored by what appropriate app, it was either Venmo or Cash App. And so that would makes the monetary infusion appropriate. I just cannot remember which one it was, assuming I got it correct. I have a vague recollection that they have 
I know Cash App also sponsors a lot of things with like streaming, like on Twitch and other things like that. So they do have a pretty decent publicity, like like marketing thing. Whereas Venmo, I don't really associate with that kind of thing. So I'm, I'm going to go with Cash App. Okay, so I'll start by saying that you correctly decoded the clue in there. Monetary infusion was the part that made it appropriate. It's an app that's used to transfer money. And so, yeah, I also agree that the two major ones are Venmo or Cash App. And between those two, the one you selected was the correct one. Oh, (laughs) All right. So first, I think I could just vaguely recall like RuPaul saying powered by Cash App <laughs> or whatever her laugh is. But. Yeah, I noticed that the phrase that kept coming up when I tried to verify it was powered by. And I was like, I assume that means that they gave the money, <laughs> but it could mean anything really. Yeah. Yeah, they're just pretty much sponsored by. I, do, I think like Twitch streamers also use that kind of language. So I think it might just be a, like a Cash App kind of terminology. But yeah. All right. So Jayanthi and Nick to try and steal from Dan. The titles of two tracks on Mark Knopfler's excellent soundtrack album for one of my favorite films, Local Hero, contain what Scottish Gaelic word referring to a social gathering that usually involves dancing and live folk music. And it's not Kiki, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Or Kai Kai, which is something totally different, which makes this very NSFW. Alrighty, Scottish Gaelic word. I have no idea. I have nothing. I mean, ugh. Dancing and live folk music. There's like, well, that's Welsh. So that wouldn't be like Scottish Gaelic. That Eid stuff for, what is it? That's festival that they have in Wales. It's like Eid something. Oh, I don't know. I could be totally wrong there. Local Hero contains. Local Hero. I don't know. Do you know anything about the movie? I don't know anything about the movie. I don't know anything about Mark Knopf. That's the Dire Straits guy, right? I think. Is it? Oh, okay. Yogi should just like last smiling. I wonder if like the film is about a like Scottish like local hero. So maybe it's like there's like a like a Scottish hero or or Wallace (laughs) or something, and then like maybe they use that word to like derive this social gathering. (laughs) I have no idea. I don't know. That's probably a stretch. No contains what Scottish Gaelic word referring to a social gathering that usually involves dancing and live folk music. I don't know. I have no idea. I don't. Should we just come up with something funny because we have no clue? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. What's like a Scottish last name, a common Scottish last name? And then we just add evol. (laughs) What was that? A Mac, a Mac, like a a Mac something. Mac festival. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? (laughs) I have no idea. All right, we'll yeah, we'll go with. Do you really want to go with Mac festival? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, locking it in. I thought you might. I thought you might go with Jimmy Lee on this one. That that, that could be a Scottish name. Sure. All right, Dan. Uh, it turns out it's actually Jay Balvin, <laughs> which is <laughs> a joke between uh, Jampy and myself. All right. So I, I can't say this with 100% certainty because I don't know the film Local Hero or the uh, soundtrack, but there is a word that describes a social gathering where there's dancing and usually kind of in a very informal setting. And it is spelled differently in the 
Gaelic and the Scottish way. So I'm going to say Kaylee. Yeah. So if you've seen that film, I mean, it's not necessary to have seen it to answer this question. If you have seen it, you know, eight or nine times the way I have, it certainly helps because that word is going to be burned into your, your head after that. But I have I have seen this film many times, mainly because I keep introducing it to new audiences. And each time there's one part that makes them all really laugh very hard. And each time it's been a different part. <laughs> It's a very interesting film in that regard. There's always something that gets a huge laugh, but it's always something different with each audience. But yeah, Kaylee, not Jimmy Lee, but Kaylee. It does end with L.I., it's true. Um, At least in the Scottish version. So one of my favorite, we do a lot of Kaylee dancing kind of after hours at, at our dance camp. And they're really simple dances, right? Like you like take your partner and you slip all the way to the bottom and you slip all the way to the top and then you circle around. And they're meant to be done after you've had several drinks. But my favorite is this one where two couples on either end sort of work their way down to the middle of the set and then join hands. And then everyone else in the line sort of like peels off and like a follow the leader goes through the arches that they make and comes back out to where they started. And we call it squeeze the toothpaste because if the people in the middle ever so slowly start shifting where they are, the entire set gets disoriented because everyone pops out, but they're no longer in line with everyone else. They're meant to be fun and like- Sounds so fun though. Yeah, I'll show you a, I'll show you a video sometime. Sounds good. Yeah, yeah. Dundee also require very careful calibration because if you get off- <laughs> And I always tell people, you'll, you know, it's of course Indian people would have a folk dance that requires being good at math. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, in spite of the misunderstanding about the category, Dan did sweep all of his questions in. I know. Impressive. Bravo. All right. Dan and Nick now to try and steal from Jayanti. All right. I'm stuck on six anyway. I've just resigned to my fate. <laughs> I right. just take a congeniality crown and, and be happy and wear that party. <laughs> All right, Hitchcock's globetrotting experimental spy thriller Topaz has a giant ensemble cast containing many veterans of the French New Wave, as well as the great Canadian thespian John Vernon, former Bond girl Karen Dorr, and future instruction giver to beautiful detective John Forsyth. Easily the most memorable section of the film, though, is anchored by what Black American actor as a French secret agent who sneaks into and out of a Harlem hotel? Known for his rich and resonant manner of speaking, this man's voice roles include the robot Box in Logan's Run, Kingpin in Spider-Man the Animated Series, and narrating everything from Babe and Babe Pig in the City to, toward the end of his life, Garfield, A Tale of Two Kitties, and Epic Movie. The only one of these that I have seen, I've not seen Topaz. The only I've one I've seen Babe I've seen when I was Babe like, and Babe, Pig of the City. Of the Murray, um, yeah. And I trying to uh, do you know about the time that Topaz was? Um, it's released? a late, it's a late Hitchcock, so I think it's sixties. Okay. I mean, James Earl Jones feels too easy for the third round. And I don't yeah. think I don't think that's his voice in Babe. Otherwise, I think it would have been a lot more recognizable. What is his name? Ron Cephas Jones? But I think he might be too young for that. The guy from uh, This Is Us. I, I think of other uh, Black actor, like Black actors of that generation. Right. Paul Robeson's too early. Harry Belfonte doesn't have a deep voice. Uh, I could come up with more. But at the moment, my brain is not, yeah. not engaging. I'm trying to think whether like actors from the 60s and 70s, but all that, like it's like it's 
the challenge is coming up with actors who are not sort of like instantly recognizable because it's not right it's not very white it's not james earl jones do you want to just say jones who was your i mean that feels i I feel like he's too young though and he just doesn't seem like the type of person to do like garfield a tale of two kitties but (laughs) maybe garfield Uh, two electric boogaloo but not a tale of two kitties (laughs) i i i have no idea all right since it overlaps with two of our guesses i say we just say jones and sounds good all right we'll say jones yeah, good strategy. I think in the last episode, there was a question where the answer was someone named Jones. And if they had done that strategy, they would have gotten it. But it doesn't pay off here. No. Jayanti? Oh, God. I don't know. I'm just going to go with Poitier because the time kind of fits and I can't think of anyone else. So I know it's wrong, but I'll go with that. Okay. Yeah. But this is someone who, although a great actor was, you know, a, bit, a little bit less famous than those big names like James Earl Jones and Sidney Poitier. His name was Roscoe Lee Brown. Okay. Right. Brown with Brown at least, maybe. <laughs> with, with who he said? I said maybe Brown would have been a better guess. Oh. <laughs> name. Yeah. Appar- yeah. Apparently that is one of the most common American surnames. <laughs> is that so? Yeah. All right. Jayanti and Dan. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's see if Jayanti can move off of six as she works with Dan on this question. Billy the Puppet, aka the creepy mouthpiece used by Jigsaw to communicate in the Saw franchise, was almost certainly inspired by the incredibly disturbing puppet employed to murder Professor Giordani in what 1975 Jalo film? Oh my gosh. I don't know a whole lot about Jalo films. This is just where the only the only word that pops to mind is Suspiria, the sort of Argento films, but I don't know those films at all. And I only know that one because of the recent remake. It's back in the news. Yeah, here's uh, where we need Randall, our other teammate, to come help us. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, uh, or John. John. John's very good at horror. Yeah, I don't know. You just have to throw a movie out there. I mean, you can't even go with the last name strategy where you can just randomly throw a name and hope that it sticks with the movie. You got to feel a lot right. more specific maybe, and show maybe, knowledge. <laughs> maybe that film is called I'll Cut Off Your Head of the Class. <laughs> Since I'm stuck on six, maybe we should just go with seven. <laughs> yeah, that's right. In a box. Um, I don't know. Suspiria is the only, the only one I can name. Let's do that. All right. Suspiria. Yeah. All right, well, Suspiria did have the death by falling into barbed wire, which may have uh, influenced that scene Nick mentioned earlier. And it is, well, some sources would call it a giallo. Some are more split more hairs about how you define that genre and would say it's not. But I mean, yeah, it's a perfectly reasonable guess, but it came out, I think, in 77. So a couple of years too late for this. Okay. Nick? I do not know this, unfortunately, which is kind of a bummer. I feel like it definitely should. And... Giallo is not one. I'm just trying to think of maybe another Argento film, and it's just not coming to mind. <sighs> so, James, this is not going to be the answer, but my reasoning for this answer is that James Wan did another puppet movie after Saw called Dead Silence, which was, to my knowledge, not related to any Giallo film after that. But besides that, I got nothing else to work with, so I'm going to say Dead Silence. All right. So, yeah, I mean, even if, if pe- people don't know that Dario Argento is my favorite director, that's still kind of the big name associated with Giallo. So that is 
the right direction to go in. But Dan and Gianti were just one film off. It was the film he made before Suspiria, Deep Red or Profondo Rosso. Oh, oh man. Yeah. Okay. Nice shot, though, Dan. Yeah. Oh. so close. I'm so many. It's good. <laughs> yeah. All right. And now, so going into the, the final cycle, yeah, Dan is still leading. He could potentially be caught by Nick, I think. But yeah. he has a pretty All big right. game. I do need a minute, though. Is that okay? okay? That's yeah. fine. Yeah. I may also go to the bathroom. Okay. Yeah. D- Deep Red is maybe not as much of a classic, I guess, as Suspiria, but it's definitely worth watching. Yeah. yeah I, now that you say it, it's, it's definitely like triggered something in my mind. I think it's probably been asked in other trivia formats as well. And I wish I would have spent more time trying to think of more Dario Argento films instead of just kind of giving up there. But oh well. Yeah. Definitely. Like that specific scene with the, the puppet, it's, I mean, as with a lot of Argento things, like the overall you know, arc of the movie doesn't make a lot of sense, but each individual scene really sticks with you. And yeah, that, that puppet one <laughs> definitely stuck yeah. with me. What was that hand gesture you were doing with, uh, with Dan? I was making a little puppet that was coming to, to attack. I thought you were oh. chewing jaws or something. <laughs> I was very confused by that. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, everyone, it's Sako. (laughs) All right, so down to the final cycle. Everyone will get one more specialist question and two more chances to steal. And we will begin with Chianti and Nick to attempt to steal from Dan. Set in Risorgimento era Italy and based on Iginio Ugo Tarcetti's 1869 novel Fosca, not Tosca, Fosca, as well as its 1981 film adaptation, what 1994 one-act Sondheim musical had the briefest Broadway run of any winner of the Best Musical Tony Award. I have no idea. Yeah, neither do I. Ugo Tarketi's 1980. One-act Sondheim. Why didn't we use the film adaptation as probably in, right? What was that? I said the film adaptation is probably are better in than the musical in. Yeah, maybe. Maybe one. I don't know. Is this 19? One or 22? Is there anything with an Italian name? I don't know. I'm trying to think from that era. 81 movies. Pomodoro. <laughs> <laughs> That's gold. <laughs> oh, um, so are there any like, like maybe figures in like Resorgimento era Italy that you could think of? Like, I, I... I don't know. 1869, right? Yeah. So, so... 1869 and 1981 film adaptation. I'm trying to think whether it was an English movie or an Italian movie with subtitles. I don't even know that to even think of a movie. You know what I mean? Yeah, I have no idea. Well, 1994, one act. I should have studied my song then. Why didn't I do my homework? <laughs> <laughs> so, like, Solamente or whatever that is in Italian. I have no idea. I, I can't. Even think of a guess. I don't know. Fosca film adaptation. I'm just trying to think whether there's any Italian sounding things from 1981 that I can remember, but I can't. Pomodoro. <laughs> uh, um, I'm fine with anything next. Just, just go. We, we have no clue, right? Viva Italia. Who knows? Yeah, I have no idea. What do we? I don't know. Viva Italia. I, I, I think we're kind of okay. Completely it's, unsure here. It's actually also deep red. No. <laughs> <laughs> They're all. Yeah. 
Okay, what do you think, Dan? So uh, I saw this off-Broadway with the somehow still without a Tony Award, Judy Kuhn in the title role, in the lead role of Fosca. The musical is Passion. And I will throw a shout out. If you like goofy Broadway-themed YouTube videos, Laura Benanti's YouTube channel is a delight. And you know how in Times Square, they always have the superheroes and the Disney people. She dressed up as the lead character from this obscure Sondheim musical and went out into Times Square and tried to get tourists to take pictures with her. But there was one man who was like on the phone and she came up to him and he was like, I have to call you back. Laura Benanti wants a photo. So <laughs> I, I've seen some of the videos on Horror Channel, not that particular one, but yes, I, I agree. Very, very entertaining channel. Yeah. When you said Resorgimento era figures, I thought maybe you might go to Garibaldi. And then I was like, what about Red Shirt as a title for a musical? <laughs> some, some people might think it's Star Trek, but, you know. <laughs> All right. And, and do you remember who, who wrote the book of that musical, Dan? Uh, who did? Yeah. Another one of Sondheim's frequent okay. collaborators, James Lapine. Okay. It was yeah. him. He also wrote the book for many other noted musicals, including Into the Woods and Falsettos. And Sunday Sun- in the Park. Yeah, which he, he, won a pil- he shared a Pulitzer with Sondheim for Sunday in the Park with George. All right, penultimate question of the game for Dan and Nick to try and steal from Jayanti. One intangible cultural heritage listed by UNESCO is a tradition in Oostduinkerke, Belgium, that is currently kept alive by less than two dozen people, one of whom... I'm going to mispronounce this too. Nele Beckart became in 2015 the first woman certified to do it. Beckart and her compatriots fish for shrimp in what specific manner? Every time someone talks about the intangible cultural heritage, I just keep wondering if uh, MC Hammers can't touch this, we'll get like an honorary <laughs> <laughs> designation. Yeah, right. so. Ways to fish for shrimp in a specific manner. With their bare hands. I feel like it would have to be something like labor intensive or something that would require a lot of like skill and preparation if only two dozen people are able to do it. I guess like, yeah, if that makes sense. <laughs> do you remember that Sesame Street sketch where Bert and Ernie were in the boat and Ernie just kept going, here, fishy, 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 fishy. <laughs> the fish would jump in. Um, the weirdest thing that comes to mind is them putting like food in their hair and then putting their hair in the (laughs) ocean I don't know (laughs) yeah is there some other like some other kind of way well it's the first woman certified to do it too so the other like 20 or 23 or it's less than two dozen so 23-ish people were all men so huh scuba diving i mean that's not really a cultural heritage thing yeah too modern but something that would have to spearing them that's what i was just about like get a spear and i don't that would be impressive i mean do you want to go for it sure let's do it spear them (laughs) okay that's interesting I'll keep quiet about that and pass it to Jayanti. Oh, keep quiet means it may be half right. All right. Um, I don't know. The one thing, I know there's one intangible thing about fishing, but that's in Sri Lanka, where there's, there's these people stand on these sticks, like in the, in the middle of the ocean, they sit on those sticks and then scoop them out. And I'm going to say it's something similar. So 
they, they're sitting on these little sticks in the middle of the water and then these kind of scoop. That's what I'm going to say. Okay. Yeah, I think it may involve spearing, but that's not like the specific thing. So I'm going to rule Dan and Nick's answer incorrect. These are the apparently famous horseback shrimpers of Ustunkirka. Oh my. They just ride the horses into the ocean and yeah. Wow. That's so cool. Apparently, <laughs> I didn't know all of the UNESCO traditions. <laughs> when you submitted that out of the category, I was like, does she, maybe she just, you know, did a thing where she memorized all of them. Who knows? No, I, know. Uh, I know. I think for me, I know a lot of the stuff, but this is obscure. I don't know. This. <laughs> you know, it, they, they do it for a chicken of the sea in Mexico. It's called water pollo. <laughs> okay yeah i think you're, you're taking it you're attacking uh jayanti's pun king title there but uh, <laughs> i think she still has it no i share the crown with dan <laughs> all right like like mean girls you break the crown in half and just give right. half okay yeah Hi, this is Future Yogesh. I did some checking after the taping, and I believe the horseback shrimpers of Belgium use nets rather than spears. All right, final question of the game. Jayanti and Dan to attempt to steal from Nick. After two two episodes that went way over time in recording, this one will in fact finish on time. <laughs> yeah, nice. We're uh, diligent. We make decisions. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jayanti and Dan to attempt to steal from Nick. While held captive during the first Paper Mario game, Princess Peach is forced by Bowser's guards to take part in what sort of competition? Apparently the 64th of its kind. The prize for winning is a jam and jelly, and all participants get a sneaky parasol. Okay. What sort of competition? 64th of its kind. I don't know. Sneaky parasol. I'm wondering if it's like a, well, my first thought was like a swimsuit competition. Yeah. Um, just because of the sun. But that, I don't know, it feels like Twitter would have a, a field day with that. <laughs> Jam and jelly and the parasol. Pie eating contest. Like that. A dance off, if that's kind of music jamming. Oh, I do but, like that. Yeah. Um, but what's the parasol for though? I don't know. I'm just trying to think of like, I feel like it has to be, (laughs) I feel like like it can't be a, like, like, I feel like the competition can't be too uh, awful. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like I just feel like the critics would not stand something too sexist or grim. Something to do with the beach or something because of parasol and sun, like maybe like a Beach volleyball contest? I don't know. I'm just throwing ideas out there. Beach volleyball, I don't, I like that. But I, uh, I mean, yeah, it's true. Competition could be like a sport rather than like a, a pageant type of contest or. Right, right. Or surfing, I don't know. Surfing. That does feel maybe more akin to jamming. Mm-hmm. Do do, why don't we do a coin for the last time? Oh, so, uh, no, let's. <laughs> I, like sur- I like surfing. What 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 is your other option that you would go okay, with? Okay, let's go with surfing. All right. Okay, let's go with surfing. Surfing. All right. What do you think, Nick? All right. So we are in one right now. It is a trivia slash quiz. I'm not sure of the exact title of it, but Princess Peach is going against two of her of like Bowser's. Aww. 
Apollo are like minions guards in a trivia competition. And before getting first place, she wins a jam and jelly and a sneaky parasol, which she uses later to, um, I don't know the physics of their whatever, but she's able to like take on the identity of one of Bowser's guards so she can sneak through the castle. I was about to say, Nick, if you if you were about to say she uses it to catch shrimp, I was gonna like just walk <laughs> out and be <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it is arguably the exact opposite of a swimsuit competition. <laughs> I'll probably cut. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, a quiz or a trivia competition. Then, interestingly yeah. enough, in Paper Mario, The Thousand Year Door, the second one, there is a, a scene where Princess Peach is captured. Again, shocker, I know. But she has to take off her clothes, but she's invisible while she does it. And uh, so not far often, I guess, in the realm of the Paper Mario universe, but not, not in this uh, specific game. All right. Well, that definitely lowered my opinion of. Uh, <laughs> well done. Uh, yeah. All right. Fitting well, the final question, though. Yes. Yeah. Well. All right. So we finished that at Jayanti, still at six point zero. Nick, right. uh, Nick at twenty three point two. Dan at thirty two point one. Good game, Dan. Yes, the real prize is getting to spend three hours with all of you. Uh, all right, so we'll yeah we'll finish now. With each of you, we'll get basically you can make a personal statement of whatever you want. It can be about the world at large, about the game, about any combination of those things in any proportion. As long as it's not too long or offensive, it'll be kept in and it'll go in reverse order of placement. So the third place finisher gets the last word. So <laughs> we'll uh, begin with Dan. Uh, I did not prep for this at all. I will just say how much joy the trivia community uh, i started doing it really i mean i did it in college and high school but i really sort of picked it back up during the pandemic and i feel like i have made like genuinely excellent friends it's fun but to me it's so much more than just knowing things it's actually about like the getting to know people and really appreciate their everything they bring to a team like personality, specialized knowledge, passions, senses of humor. Like to me, that's where the real heart of a, of a trivia team goes. Very well said. Nick. Pretty much kind of what Dan said. I picked up trivia beginning of the pandemic to uh, just find a new hobby and try to make some new friends. And I made some great ones along the way. And y'all have immensely improved my mental health and just made me feel so much more confident in this community. So I can't thank y'all enough, especially, uh, y'all three and everyone else who knows I know in the community. I also want to give a special shout out to all the uh, queer quizzers out there. I love y'all so much. Yes. Well, I really can't top these two. They've said exactly what I want to say. And I want to say that nothing about trivia has been trivial for me these last two years. (laughs) Yeah, I think I think everyone who's gotten to know all three of you would similarly, you know, give credit to you as, you know, to all of you as people who make the experience of being in the community much better. Thank you, Yogesh. Thank you, Yogesh. Yeah, this was great fun. Yeah. Um, I'm glad I didn't go with my first thought, which was just to be like, I'm single. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But no, you, you really put on a great show and I love your, your dedication and your inclusiveness. Your, yeah, you really pour your soul into your writing edges. Your question writing is phenomenal. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I do. I do put a lot of work into it. I'm not going to be falsely modest there. I, I put a lot of work into it, and I care about doing it well. And it so shows. That, so, 
Thank you. So this has been episode one of season three of Recreational Thinking with Yogesh Rao. Thanks for listening.